Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the podcast where good taste and bad taste collide. Whitney, I've got the sound effects. Oh, dang it. All right. Okay. Anyway, my name is William Bibiani. I'm a film critic, and everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a film critic. I'm the one with all the sound effects. That... You're the one who does the sound effect. You're you're the. Uh, That's the what guy? I'm known for. Who's the guy from Police Academy? Michael Winslow. <laughs> you're the Michael Winslow of critically acclaimed. That's Thanks right. That. I'm, I'm the Michael Winslow. It means you've got one shtick and you're gonna run with it forever. I, I, although I think most people might view me as the Captain Harris of the podcast. <laughs> Um, anyway, this week on Critically Acclaimed, we're reviewing a bunch of new movies, including Spike Lee's The Five Bloods, Kenneth Branagh's Artemis Fowl, The King of Staten Island, which I think is a Judd Apatow joint, Apatow and the uh, Korean horror movie Warning, Do Not Play. Also, on the Critically Acclaimed streaming club, we are doing a dinner date, a nice confectionery evening of pleasant conversation with the one the only andre it's my dinner with andre uh and uh yeah am i uh, forgetting anything with it that's what we're doing this week cool and i'd like to start with defive bloods if you don't mind i don't mind at uh, all because this movie is amazing this this movie is friggin' great uh spike lee has really been knocking it out of the park recently with his his narrative features i haven't seen all of his films in mm. recent years cuz he's actually very prolific he's astoundingly uh, prolific actually yeah and he's done yeah he's done like a lot of documentaries in there that i haven't seen and uh, i feel remiss in not seeing all of Spike Lee's movies i've been i actually i was going to make it a point earlier this year and uh, then you know pandemics and everything mm. but i was actually gonna watch every single spike lee movie this year yeah it was yeah. like one of my little resolutions and there's still time i'll probably do it but i have not sat down and just tried to go in chronological order the way i wanted to mm. but i think i need to do that because i've never seen a spike lee film i wasn't at least impressed by i've, I've seen one that i actively disliked oh actually that's actually right. strike strike that old boy sucks I didn't see Old Boy. I think even Spike Lee <laughs> isn't a huge fan of Old Boy because it's like mm. the only Spike Lee film that doesn't. That it's doesn't, not called a joint. Yeah, it's not called a Spike Lee joint. He's Spike Lee is just like, yeah, okay, this is just this one's just a movie. It, it was one of the ones he did as a director for hire. Like yeah. that, it wasn't his idea to bring Old Boy, like making an, an English language version of Old yeah. Boy. Uh, Old Boy is a uh, Korean revenge thriller uh, mm. that is really quite astounding. And not quite like anything else, and you should definitely see the original, although, warning, it gets fucked up. Uh, but it is an excellently made film, mm. and they've been toying like with making... opera, it's pretty yeah. nuts. They've been toying with making an American remake for many, many years, and for whatever reason, Spike Lee ended up being the person to do it with Josh Brolin, which is an interesting choice, and... Um, there are bits that Spike Lee is clearly having fun with in that movie, but it just... it it. it the translation mm. from one culture to the next doesn't really feel complete. Yeah. It feels like there's a lot of stuff that they kept in arbitrarily or changed arbitrarily, and it doesn't really work. Yeah, and, and from what I understand, and I read essays on this, I'm by no means an expert, but mm. uh, the original Old Boy was based very solidly in a lot of uh, Korean cultural norms. That mm. I mean, that you don't necessarily need to know them to enjoy the film, but yeah. this idea that you can be plucked from obscurity and be punished randomly is something that's actually kind of uh, pervasive in Korean culture. I, I'm actually not uh, familiar enough with the culture to say yes or no to that. 
Uh, how I read is definitely a part of the movie, and it is uh, what a hell, uh, what hell of a film. But to Spike Lee, uh, Spike Lee is. Uh, Thank goodness we have a filmmaker as direct as Spike Lee. Yeah. He's just going to say, you know, say what's on his mind. He's not going to couch it in some sort of metaphor. Mm -hmm. He's not going to try to tell you a subtle lesson by kind of going around it and like making it emotionally satisfying. There's not a lot of mainstream sort of way. It's all not only is it text, it's yelled. His his films are 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 stridently stylized, uh, just to the point where. they become very exhilarating. And it's really nice to know that throughout his entire career, he's never pumped the brakes at all well, on, he, on this, this uh, energy and, and loudness that he puts in his movies. Another thing I really admire about Spike Lee is mm. that in the, I mean, I haven't seen every single Spike Lee movie, but in pretty much every Spike Lee movie I've seen, his characters are thoughtful and they talk about their mm. feelings and their experiences and their education, like what they have learned about themselves and their culture. Mm. And often, right at the camera oh uh, yeah, yeah which which happens here in the five bloods and what that means is that you know there's a lot of movies out there with characters who seem to be just living their life in a fog until the plot happens and mm. then like what the world exists and mm. then they learn about it spike lee's movies are often about people who are already active participants in their own lives and in the world and in the culture around them and politics and whatever mm. else is going on art sports whatever he's making a movie about so that when something movie-like happens to them, like a hostage situation or mm. a revenge plot or even just one of his more subtle dramas in which they go on a road trip to the Million Man March or whatever, by the time the interesting thing happens to them, the characters are already plenty interesting. Yeah, yeah. So they have interesting things to say and interesting reactions, interesting takeaways, and that's so much more alive than most movies. Yeah. And uh, I I got to interview Spike Lee once, and yeah. uh, I asked, you know, can, can you speak to the fact that you seem to be one of the only filmmakers who directs in this direct style? And uh, you know, he he very in a very diplomatic way said, "Look, I can't speak for other filmmakers. I don't know, uh, but you know, why make a film if you're not going to just say what you mean? Yeah, why not engage with the mm. text? And he does. And I've never seen him." Even Old Boy, which isn't amazing, but I've never seen him half-ass a film. Yeah, yeah. I've never seen him just go through the motions. Even if it doesn't quite work, it's always mm. he took a big swing. And yeah, but uh, but his Chirac was one of the best films of that year. Yeah, uh, Black Klansman was one of the best films of that year. Damn straight. And uh, The Five Bloods is one of the best films of this year. Uh, no question. Uh, this is. Uh, in less deft hands, a, a rote war thriller. I can picture this uh, directed by like Peter Berg, well, and I, have and have it be just sort of like a, a really dull war action picture. Well, it's actually got its start kind of um, mm. in that vein. Uh, the original writers, before they were rewritten, mm. uh, were uh, Danny Bilson and Paul DeMeo, who typically write genre kind of fluff mm. um they were behind the tv series the sentinel and viper and the ninth and the live action original 90s version of the flash these, are all, inter- yeah. these are all entertaining things but they're not very deep uh they also uh co-wrote the rocketeer which is a really good movie but not very deep they also wrote the eliminators and arena <gasps> those are great movies those are really really great movies they're not deep no they're not <laughs> so they wrote apparently a script about a bunch of vietnam veterans who uh, reunite and return to Vietnam in order to bring back the body 
of their platoon leader, mm-hmm. who, which had been left behind in the Vietnam War. They finally found out where it is, but also to unearth uh, a hidden pile of gold that they had found in a plane crash. Now, this leads to drama and treachery and all that stuff, and you can kind of picture in your head where this is going, and there are nuggets of that left in the script, but Spike Lee is interested in that. He, well, what he's interested in is the soldier's experience and who these men are now and uh, who they've become what, and how the war kind of stained them. And I think because of the age he is, Spike Lee is in his early 60s, I think, mm. uh, this weird obsession that uh, America has with the Vietnam War. Yeah. There's and, a, there's a bit in the movie where people uh, where uh, these characters and they're it's a wonderful cast like the uh, main cast uh, includes uh, is it Clark yeah Clark Peters Clark Peters Delroy Lindo uh, Isaiah Whitlock uh, Norm Lewis um, these are all guys who went to Vietnam they had their experiences in Vietnam and then when they got back home the movies that people were making about Vietnam were Rambo. Yeah, and like the original was... Rambo, maybe that's fine. But the thing that they single out in this movie is when they talk about how, in the Rambo sequels, he goes back to Vietnam and wins the war after the fact. Well, it, it all, it's bullshit. It all, it's it's the, the Vietnam War appeared to be this like the biggest possible stain on the rather incorrect theory of American exceptionalism. Yeah, like we, we won we, World War we I, win we won World War II, and, and we Vietnam... always succeed. The American dream is about you know starting small and get, just getting bigger. Yeah. And there's never a downslide in that arc. It's yeah. just expanding, expanding, and succeeding, and succeeding. If you believe in American jingoism, mm. the Vietnam War is a real mm. blow to the ego. It's mm. also a really horrifying event that was... Symbolic of a lot of Co- corruption and lies in the government. Yeah, uh, it's it's really really fucked up, and that's yeah, there's, the main takeaway. Shouldn't be oh that's the one we didn't win. Mm. The main takeaway should be everything Spike Lee is talking about. But yeah, there is this fantasy of Vietnam as either this rite of passage or when, this when war America that, finally lost its innocence. Yeah, yeah or man. or potentially as something that we can relitigate through cinema. Right. And uh yeah, and of course there were a lot of Vietnam movies that were made in the direct wake of the Vietnam War films like Apocalypse Now, Platoon, mm-hmm. which do not depict it as fun in the slightest, but there is an element of over the top uh, melodrama to those movies yeah, where, oh, they, for sure. where Vietnam becomes again it's it's not celebrating the war but it is treating it as this important rite of passage for America mm. and um, I have mixed feelings about that well and Spike Lee has mixed feelings about that because I think he probably grew up with that point of view about the Vietnam War mm-hmm. uh, or at least that's what a lot of the media was telling him uh, yeah. first of all there hasn't been a, a film that's focused particularly on the black experience of the Vietnam War. Uh, Dead uh, that I can Pardon? Dead Presidents. I haven't seen Dead Presidents, so good. I apologize. It's very uh, good. So there is Dead Presidents. Yes. Uh, my apologies. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, that's another hole in my film education. Yeah. Um, but you're right. There aren't a lot. There, there, aren't, a lot. there aren't a lot. Yeah. You know, usually you, you think of like Platoon or uh, or... Apocalypse Now. Yeah, those are considered the two big mm. ones, or some of the ones or, or about like a return- the Deer Hunter or Coming yeah. Home. You know, yeah. the, these other ones. That Born are- on the Fourth of July, mm. Forced Gump to some extent. 
Oh, for Forrest, parts of Forrest Gump. Anyway, Forrest Gump is the opposite of the Five Bloods. Oh yeah, uh, the Forrest Gump is it's mythologizing America. Oh, golly, in a way that's um, all kind of irresponsible. Oh, it's actually. hugely irresponsible. <laughs> Newt Gingrich like played that at like super right wing Republican rallies about you know this kind of American exceptionalism and how the hippies were wrong and Vietnam was a good war. Uh, and I think Spike Lee has finally uh, is just coming out and saying it. I'm over my ambivalence. I don't feel too wasted about the Vietnam War, it wounded everything. Yeah. Uh, and it was a bad mistake. Uh, people were lied to about what they were doing there. And uh, there's a point in the movie uh, where it's told uh, partly in the in the present and partly in the past, mm-hmm. uh, where we finally get to meet the, the fallen platoon leader and sort of what a, a good charismatic guy. And he's played by Chadwick Boseman. So, of course, he's, mm. he's, he's, so he's handsome as well. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> He's he's he's, he's the, like the uh, he's the platoon leader mm. who died in Vietnam and he didn't get to grow old like the other ones did. And an interesting choice. Mm. All of the flashback scenes, all of the protagonists are played by the actors who play them in their sixties. But yeah, but without any makeup, yeah. they're just themselves. Yeah, this is basically their memories. They're projecting themselves. So but Chadwick they, Boseman never grew up, so Chadwick Boseman gets to have all of these scenes yeah. with Delroy Lindo and Clark Peters mm. and Isaiah Whitlock, and it's no. it works. It's an interesting mm. choice, and it really works. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, the, the the ambivalence is gone, and uh, the the scene I was about to refer to was. Uh, when they're in Vietnam and they receive word of the assassination of Martin Luther King, who is actually in the last shot of the movie. Uh, But uh, they have this, like, very immediate existential crisis. Mm. We're in Vietnam. What the fuck are we doing? Mm -hmm. And they immediately stand up with their guns and say, we're killing the wrong people. Mm. Let's pick up our guns and start killing the right people. Like, right in that moment. They're fighting for freedoms that they are not getting. Yeah, that that are being denied them in America. They are disproportionately uh, uh, represented in Vietnam. There are way more, like black soldiers in Vietnam percentage wise mm. than there are black people in America at the time. Mm. Like they're just going like the rich affluent, mostly white communities can get out of Vietnam. These mm. guys can't. It's some fucked up shit. Yeah. yeah. And I love the way that Spike Lee's always been really good about this, where he'll make a movie and maybe it's a historical piece, something like Malcolm X or black Klansman. And even though he's making a story that is set in the past, he is very eager to make sure it is immediate. He well, makes connections he under- between Black Klansmen and what was happening in American politics he, that uh, year. He understands yeah. that these this is just a long line of the same piece of history. Yeah. Uh, that is being erased by Hollywood because mm-hmm. Hollywood is still mostly stars white people. And uh, also uh, about how the way the history books are written. And whenever we see or hear stories about the soldier's experience or we see movies about the soldier's mm-hmm. experience, it's a group of white guys. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and over the course of the film, he, his, his protagonists are intelligent. They know their history mm-hmm. and they talk about how, you know, one of the first people who fell in the American revolution, I think maybe the first person was Crispus mm-hmm. Attucks, mm-hmm. A, a, a black man. And that's something that like, be, They've been on the front lines of every American war and never fully appreciated or respected. Yeah. And yeah, this this legacy of abuse informs this storyline, which is about getting gold. <laughs> it's a treasure hunting yeah. movie. It, it could easily have been sort of like a, a flight of the Phoenix or... Mm-hmm. Um, 
Oh, what was the the Clint Eastwood film, World War II film? Oh, Kelly's Kelly's Heroes, Heroes. which is fun. Yeah, it's where they also uh, another yeah. one where he gathers up a bunch of uh, World War II slugabeds and they also mm-hmm. go to find gold. Or even something like Three Kings, which is trying to be both fun and socially conscious. Mm. The Five Bloods has it all over Three Kings. Like, uh, three, it's way... three, first of all, I've I've never been a big fan of Three Kings. Yeah. I think that's kind of a mediocre film. Uh, mm. it, it's it tries to cover up its emptiness with style, and I don't think it and a even couple fully of big succeeds. speeches yeah. that feel rebellious. Yeah. And but they're not rebellious, and yeah. uh, and and they feel yeah they feel like they're pulling their punches, or they just sort of feel soft or mealy mouthed because mm-hmm. the filmmakers seem more interested in the film yeah. than what it's actually saying. Yeah, and We're, that's not something Spike Lee could ever be accused of. Spike Lee has this interesting uh, uh, stylistic approach in The Five Bloods, where when they're talking about people, like they're referencing people in the past, whether it's. Aretha Franklin or Crispus mm. Attucks or anyone else, he will literally cut to like you're watching a YouTube video, a still image mm-hmm. of that person. But then he will also use that later in the film because he's interested in how the Vietnam War not only affected black people, but also the Vietnamese and yeah. how it is a stain on that country as well. And there's a lot of animosity and horror. And we talk about like, Oh, they, those guys killed our platoon leader. Like, yeah, you killed my parents. <laughs> like that's, it's both. And when they're talking about like the people who died in Vietnam and they're like, yeah, well, what about what you did in Vietnam? And then they list all the horrible things Americans did in Vietnam. And Spike Lee will show images of dead children. Mm. It's really shocking. But it's important to, because to, this to, is yeah, to because, remind you that this is what happened, and also to remind you that this is not fun. Mm. War and its legacy and its impact and its post-traumatic stresses and its generational uh, follow-through—it's not fun. Mm. It is, however, captivating. And that's also not to say that this film, which has a, you know, a lot of uh, ideas as to the scars that war has left on the conscience of this country and uh, the way uh, black people have been horrendously, like, e- even in times of war, more mistreated than mm-hmm. others. Yeah. Uh, it's still a cracking yarn. Yeah. And it's exhilarating to watch and has some awesome action set pieces mm-hmm. that play into those themes and also are uh, a great way just to make a lot of those things more exhilarating to watch. Yeah. Um, So we've got a really Mm. wonderful cast here. Um, Delroy Lindo is the standout because he he Mm. plays the guy who is reeling the most from trauma to this day. He's the one member of the cast who voted for Trump and they give him Mm. a lot of shit for that. In fact, he wears a Make America Great Again hat throughout the entire film and it Mm. is a symbol that Spike Lee does things with <laughs> does quite a few things with actually oh God, those those mega hats I know I, I saw a clip recently from a, a it was an outtake from a British news broadcast mm-hmm. where uh, Trump was at he was giving a speech at uh, a club in England mm-hmm. talking to to the British and uh, one of the reporters had brought a bunch of golf balls with swastikas painted on them and stood up and said this is what you're doing to our country and he spilled them everywhere wow and the most uh the most amazing shot though was he was escorted out by security and never you know that clip didn't make it onto the news but there's a clip of one of Trump's aides putting a bunch of those golf balls in a maga hat like if there is wow, not, not a more potent symbol for what's going on That's right amazing. now. I didn't hear about that. That was yeah, amazing. Yeah. But um, so he's 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 in a different place. He's very estranged from his son mm. David, played by Jonathan Majors, who comes along as well because he's worried about his father, and he's starting to feel like his dad, even if he's not 
like dying per se. He's mm. losing his dad. His dad is succumbing to mental illness. His dad is uh, losing to his inner demons. And he wants to join him on this journey. And yeah, a lot of it is just them hanging out. A lot of it mm. is them reliving their past and talking about the incidents that matter to them and returning to this nation that they were a part of at a very different time and seeing how like capitalist Western enterprises have succeeded in conquering this nation that they couldn't conquer with guns because it's it's almost yeah. unrecognizable to them now. Uh, what I appreciate is when when the uh, the four friends all get get back together and they kind of uh, they they hug and they reminisce and they're talking and having these conversations. Uh, they're presented as very fully realized characters and they their shared experience did bring them closer. But I've seen this sort of thing a lot in war pictures about how there's this kind of halcyon nostalgia for the times of the war mm. where it's the, remember how intense things were and well there's a bond that, that was that, there's a that bond whole, that no one will ever understand unless you were there I understand that yeah. but I, I've seen so many I saw a film uh, earlier uh, earlier this year called the last full measure it was mm. with uh, Sebastian Stan and and it had a, a really great cast there's like Ed Harris and, and Peter Fonda's in it and and uh, Samuel L. Jackson. There's a really fantastic cast, uh, but it's a terrible film because a it's about somebody who is a, a dead soldier who is already honored, getting an even better honor, and like what a long legal struggle that was, and that's not a very interesting story. Mm. And also, uh, it treated like these people were very wounded by the war, and they each had their their uh, monologues about their experiences. But there was also this underlying current of. Uh, very, very pro-military heroism that made everything seem like it it's like the war took place at a, like a kind of a calmer, more pleasant time. Mm. They're looking back at this and longing for that time and not in an ironic, we, we were addicted to the violence hurt locker sort of way, right? but in a, an almost 1950s way. Like they're looking back at the well, Vietnam War. That was their war. youth. It was their youth. Yes, that's but, what they had instead of instead of not war. But I've seen so many films that treat the Vietnam War as if it was something very pleasant, and I think mm. uh, there are certain filmmakers like Coppola, like Kubrick, and now like Spike Lee who realize no, <laughs> there's yeah. nothing exciting or fun or nostalgic or warm about those memories because it was all taking place in this shitstorm. Yeah. I, I remember uh, watching this movie and I'm waiting for the shoe to drop. You know, they're going off into the jungle mm. together. One of them has a gun. Delroy Lindo is not in a healthy place and he's paranoid and angry. And I'm waiting for the plot to kick it into overdrive. I'm waiting for something mm. bad to happen. When, when the plot takes over, it yeah. becomes a much less interesting film, mostly. Yeah, yeah, I'm waiting for that moment. And to Spike Lee's credit, this movie's like two and a half hours. He waits until the last possible minute <laughs> to go there. And when he mm. goes there, it's... It doesn't actually, feel like he's giving up. It feels like it's well-earned. Yeah, it doesn't feel like we're just doing the genre thing. And it doesn't feel like we're going immediately into... You know, into overdrive. We're not immediately going into the genre version of this film, and we're gonna forget all of the wonderful character work and um, you know resonant exploration of salient themes that we've been dealing with. Um, we know these characters now, and they're brilliantly brought to life by an excellent cast. So when bad things happen, we know why they happen, and they're not happening in a way that looks 
awesome. Yeah. These are still men in their 60s, many of whom have not like even been keeping themselves in shape. They're well trained enough that they can go back into that mode as best that they can pretty mm-hmm. pretty easily, but when shit hits the fan and actually like people start shooting each other and things start blowing up, it's not John Wick, nor should it be. This is no, a, this no. is a different kind of intensity and there's a different level of threat and a different level of stakes, and this is the kind of movie where all of these guys could realistically die. Mm-hmm. You're watching it, and I'm like, this is some kind of movie where literally everyone could die, or the wrong people could live, mm-hmm. if you want to look at it in that simplistic, moralistic way. Um, so it does feel like, and I love a movie where I love a movie like this. It feels like the safety is off. It feels like mm-hmm. anything can happen, and anything that does happen is in guided hands. And it's and yet it's still Spike Lee. You know, Spike Lee is considered like I think most people think of him as a political filmmaker. He's also a fun filmmaker. Yeah. He's full of energy and like he does some really interesting things with um uh different cuz this is a movie that was made for Netflix. It was made to go to streaming. And that gives him I think a freedom to play with a lot of the aspect ratios. Mm. There's a the, lot. The, fl- the flashbacks are in Academy Standard mm. 137. And, and sometimes he'll go to different levels of widescreen. There's this really amazing shot where it cuts to black, and then there's just a thin horizontal line mm. of light, and it just keeps growing and growing and growing until it builds the entire screen because we're in a different part of the movie now. It's actually a technique that it's, I wonder if this is a coincidence. I would be surprised if it is. Because when he cuts back to Vietnam, he's going back to Academy Ratio. Right. Um, which is the format that you would probably see in documentaries in Vietnam at the time. People were shooting on 16mm mm. or 8mm. Um, it's a technique that was used in the movie More American Graffiti, okay. constantly playing with aspect ratio, which is one of Delroy Lindo's first films. In fact, there's actually one <laughs> there's, shot... There's no way that Spike Lee didn't know that. I know, there's yeah, like he's... one... I want to know, I'm curious about this, and this could just be good Photoshop or something, mm. but... There's one shot of Delroy Lindo as a young man in a Vietnam War uh, uh, uniform, uniform uh, that era. And I think it might be a production still for more American Graffiti or maybe a personal photograph he took on the set. It's entirely possible. Well, well, filmmakers do that all the time. Oh, I know, yeah. but it's fun, though. Like, it's like that, I remember in the Limey, we saw footage yeah. of young Terrence Stamp, and that's just from another film he yeah. was in. But there's also, like, really, like, kind of on-the-nose, playful, but well-earned callbacks to stuff like The Treasure of the Sierra Madre or yeah, The Bridge yeah. on the River Kwai. And, I, it, you know, there, he's, there was, he's putting uh, this movie in a tradition mm-hmm. of movies about war and greed. Mm-hmm. And... He's finding a new place for it. What exciting! What an exciting thing yeah, but, that is. But again, greed isn't the central part of it. It's no. it's actually a, a larger comment on on the war. It's actually about uh, men who are mostly trying not to be greedy. In fact, mm. they're one of the, they vowed that they would give all of this money, and there's some temptation not to. But they vowed that they would give all of this money. Uh, to the civil rights movement mm. in the 1960s, and then a variety of situations prevented them from coming back until now. Um, but so there, there's a talk now, and that ends up tying everything into to, the yeah. Black Lives Matter movement. Well, today, I was, was going to say you're, you're, you talked about. I didn't want to say this because it does go to like the very end of this film. But uh, you talked about how there are a lot of films that try to relitigate what Vietnam was all about, and I feel like this does that to a degree that. Uh, had these men been permitted to do what they were going to do back in the 60s, then things wouldn't be as bad as they are now. It's like they were just mm-hmm. catching up and bringing justice about a little bit late. 
mm-hmm. although Spike Lee is too sophisticated a filmmaker to let that be sort of a cultural out, like everything's going to be okay now. Mm-hmm. But he does feel like uh, he's, he's patching up an old mistake well, I in, think, in some ways. I think there's an argument being made in the film mm-hmm. that there is an enormous number of uh, black men in particular who were sent to Vietnam who could have been participating in the civil rights movement. Mm. And, you know, the the scene where they find out that Martin Luther King has been killed, uh, from Hanoi Hanna, no less, the uh, voice of uh, North Vietnamese propaganda radio, mm. uh, who in the Vietnam War would do daily radio shows playing anti-war themes from America and calling out very specific divisions and saying where they were and telling them things like, ah, Muhammad Ali said this about the Vietnam Mm. War. You guys shouldn't be here. It's unnecessary. Mm. It's a hell of a weird chapter in entertainment history. Um, Real person, Hanoi. Yeah, and um, and portrayed in the the film by an actor. But the scene where they find out that Martin Luther King died is just really one, maybe the mm. best scene in the movie. It's kind of everything. The film opens with a speech by Muhammad Ali, uh, Mm. and it ends with a speech by Martin Luther King, and they were both very staunchly against the Vietnam War. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, Spike Lee knows exactly what the fuck he's doing. He knows his history. He's strikingly intelligent. And he knows better than to couch it in adventure. Yeah. Uh, that said, the landmine scene got my heart beating pretty fast. There's some really, there's some, there's some, there's some very intense stuff in this mm. movie. It is not boring. I know we're making it sound like it's all maybe heady and like we might make it sound like it's homework. This is the best kind of homework. This is the kind of homework where you can't stop reading your textbook and like mm. it's blowing your mind and all of a sudden the world is open up to you. This is a very, very, mm. I, I think, important Vietnam War film. Yeah. And Spike Lee has this always... Is immediately shot up on my list of the best Vietnam War movies. Oh, for yeah. sure. It's definitely one of the best of the year. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Spike Lee always aims to inform, not just entertain. Yeah. And uh, I and think he often he, does both in equal measure. Yeah. And this is one of those. Some of his films are weaker than others, but this one is one of his better. Like yeah. the, the last three have just been fantastic. Yeah. To, um, repeat, to repeat myself. Um, now let's make a really hard shift. Mm. Like let's just power slide this podcast and like scuff up like a whole like big cloud of dust and then go right in the opposite direction at 100 miles an hour. Oh, no. Because we got to talk about the new Disney film, Artemis Fowl. Oh, God. This okay. Is a, this is a movie that was supposed to come out last summer. It had been in development for the better part of 20 years. Uh, it is based on, incredibly loosely, by the way, uh, based on a series of young adult uh, novels about a master criminal kid who ends up running afoul of the world of the supernatural. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was supposed to come out last summer. It got delayed to this summer, and then shit happened, and now it ended up going straight to Disney+. And your first thought is, oh, does this mean Disney knew that it wasn't going to be a big hit and they're just going to make the most of it. And having I seen the film, yeah, I think that's what That's happened. probably it. Now, yeah. this is a film by Kenneth Branagh. It stars Colin Farrell. The uh, well, author well, is... Co-stars Colin co-star, Farrell. Well, he's, I mean, he's in it. And, yeah. uh, it's got Judy author, Dench in there, too. It's Judy Dench in it. But uh, Kenneth Branagh, Colin Farrell, and the original author are all Irish, and it's set in Ireland. And it is the most Irish thing you've ever Irished. Uh, <laughs> there's that's not true. I've seen Darby O'Gill and the Little People. Darby O'Gill, okay, and, and also The Secret of Kells. But uh, yeah. the, the, there are more. There are more Irish films, but I've never seen an Irish like such an Irish film with such a big budget. Uh, yeah. It and like, like a fantasy epic 
with like Irish movie. It's like a hundred and twenty-five million dollar special effects epic that is about Irish folklore. Uh, so. Artemis Fowl, the title character, is a young boy. He's 12. His dad, Artemis Fowl Sr., he learns rather early on, was a master thief, like, gentleman heist cat burglar. Yeah. And not only did he steal valuable things, he stole valuable things from the world of the fairies. Yeah. Which has been evolving undersea, very much like in the the film Onward, uh, has been evolving into this high-tech super society where they have, like, flying ships and their fairy wings are actually this very sophisticated wing technology. And yeah, like, they all like wear, the Rocketeer, like, but instead of rockets, it's fairy wings. It's fairy wings. Yeah. They all have laser guns and flying cars, and they have developed a technology, what do they call time bubbles or something? I think, where yeah, something like that. They can they create can... time bubbles where they can, like, do fairy stuff within these bubbles and not affect the rest of the world. They can yeah, move undetected. Because we paused time within yeah. this bubble, or we paused time outside of this bubble and I'm curious what the range on that is um, but yeah <laughs> like it's out, one of the, like out into the cosmos forever it's yeah. one of the many 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 fantasy stories in which their fantasy stuff still exists but it is kept a secret and keeping mm. it a secret is one of the most important things that the fairies well, what, do. I, I love this conceit in fantasy stories how, no, it turns out vampires are real, but they're hiding in secret. Or it turns out hobbits are real, but they're hiding in secret. Or because that's the only way. The, Mothmen everywhere. That's the only way yeah. you can have them right it's now. It's the only way you can have them right now. Yeah. And it all, all of these stories imply that human beings are such assholes <laughs> that if they knew that anything extraordinary existed, they would just exploit it and destroy it. Yeah. And we know that's kind of true. You know, so I'm starting I'm to kind wonder. of okay with that. I'm starting to wonder, because you may recall that like a month ago mm. the American government flat out said UFOs are real and nobody cared. Yeah. yeah. And nobody batted. I, I think that ruined the X-Files for me forever. It's like, oh, if, if people knew that aliens were real, it would change everything. So there's these massive conspiracies and people getting murdered all the time to keep Just the secret. Keep that secret. And then we UFOs are real and everyone's like, we assumed. Yeah, we and already we, knew. We've seen the X-Files. And then we went back to complaining about the Snyder Cut. Like, <laughs> we have more important things going on so like this conceit is starting to lose mm. favor with me but when it's done well it can still be very entertaining it's not done well here it's no. very, in fact this film is only 95 minutes which is unusual for films of this scope usually mm. these gigantic effects epics uh move and are written in a certain way that mm. takes up a good two hours of screen time I, but yeah this one's they, very small in it's fact, very small it, it mostly takes through. place in artemis fowl's house in in artemis fowl's house and uh, the idea is uh, his father has stolen a MacGuffin. It's essentially a gigantic magical acorn. Yeah. And this gigantic magical acorn is something that uh, the fairy community wants back very badly. The daughter of a disgraced fairy cop uh, is sent to take care of some things on Earth and then goes rogue to look for it. Yeah. Uh, in <coughs> Meanwhile, the, the leprechaun police chief, played by Judy Dench... Yay! Look, Kenneth Branagh is a very ambitious director. He's yeah. done some very, very good films, and he's done some very, very bad films. I hold that the films he does for hire, like his commercial films, are his worst movies. Cinderella is very good. Cinderella That's is the exception to that, because I do like his Cinderella. That's a really good movie. Uh, and, and you can tell the, the Bran, Branagian... Branagian. Uh, Branagian uh, flourishes <laughs> that he throws in there. There's a scene in, in uh, Cinderella where... Uh, 
Prince Charming and all of his men are just sort of standing around fencing and laughing and drinking and having a good time. It's like, oh, Kenneth Branagh, you're just having fun now. He good. Was, he wishes the whole movie was that, just guys yeah. fencing or, you know, having a good time. But I think he did a really good job uh, with that because he kept the magic and mm. the appeal and the romance of that story. But all he did was improve the characters. Yeah, just gave Prince Charming and uh, Cinderella more chemistry, more time to talk. Mm. Gave the wicked stepmother tons of character development. Kate Blanchett's mm. wonderful in that movie. He knows how to do something fun. And then he'll do something like Jack Ryan's Shadow Recruit, and you're like, where the fuck was the Cinderella? <laughs> or, I'll take the it. Thor Kenneth Branagh yeah, yeah, over yeah. this. It's just like, completely uninspired. Yeah, even Thor felt like he was kind of sleepwalking through I, that. I like That's Thor like... more than you do, but it's basically a straightforward genre film, mm. and you can tell he's having more fun when they're in Asgard, and it looks like some mm. kind of weirdly elaborate like Hamlet, <laughs> like sci-fi Hamlet uh, he's this, doing. This and... big, I don't know. I, I hated the design of, of Asgard I, in that movie. but I liked it, but whatever. Uh, we can disagree. But like here, but he, here he's, he's, he's just stuck with plot he's stuck with plot nothing he's, but plot the entire but I, movie I appreciate that when he does these four higher things that it, like the classy actors he's worked with in the past are like sure I'll, I'll play a leprechaun police yeah. chief uh, uh, she's a fairy but the, the fairy <sighs> police department is called like it's an acronym that spells out leprechaun but c-o-n at the end like welcome to leprechaun we couldn't find Uh, find an h-a-u acronym so we just decided to run with it (laughs) but uh to be fair to be fair hold on i just want to say this to be fair judy dench will do anything she'll do anything and she does it well yeah she'll be in cats she'll be in chronicles of reddick she will do anything Mm. She, she and I love her good, for she it. She has a good work ethic. Yeah. Sure, I'll paste on ears and talk like a police chief. I, sure, I, I haven't not, played yeah. a leprechaun yet. Let's do it. <laughs> Just check that off the list. Yeah. What's left? Mermaid. Okay, well, who's making a mermaid picture? So the so the main plot with Artemis Fowl, mm. though, is that his dad goes missing, mm. and he is called up by a mysterious magical person saying, I have kidnapped your father. Mm. And in order to get him back, you have to bring me the MacGuffin. He's like, I don't know what that is or how to find it. You have three days to figure it out. I'm like, that's not a great plan. Okay. So he's got to figure out because he didn't know fairies were real, real. His dad was always fascinated by them, so he's got like he's heard about them his whole life. Mm. He didn't know magic was real, real until today, and now he's got three days to become an expert on magic and find a way to find this magical mm. thing. And he comes up with this really elaborate scheme, which is kind of fun in a vacuum, where he's going to kidnap a fairy. Mm. He's going to hold like, them hostage. Hold them hostage, and then when Judy Dench and all the other fairies come in, he's going to keep them busy and distracted and fight them off long enough that their secondary backup plan will be to bring to him a dwarf. Mm. So because dwarfs are like always hunting for treasure, and once there's a dwarf in his house, the dwarf will immediately find the MacGuffin. Mm. It's a bit elaborate, but I like that it's and elaborate. It's- I that's the thing I like. I like that. The idea of this movie is the protagonist is so clever. Yeah. A 12-year-old that is so clever, he's manipulating the entire fairy universe. It's, imagine if imagine if the protagonist of your supernatural adventure movie for kids was a 12-year-old version of Alan Rickman's character from Die Hard. <laughs> and apparently was, that's way more the book. I was going to say Danny Ocean, but yeah. yeah uh, apparently the book mm. he's not like 
the son of this guy who's been protecting the world from uh, evil this whole time. And it turns out in the book, or so I've been told, mm. so of my research has done, in the book, he's actually a criminal mastermind and the, like, child wunderkind head of a criminal empire who, instead of kidnapping a fairy in order to find a magical thing to save his hero dad, he mm. kidnaps a fairy so that the fairies will bring him tons of gold. <laughs> yep. it, it's all self-interest. Mm. And I'm telling you, that's a way better <laughs> idea. They have... Also, uh, he, overwritten this thing. Yeah. To the extent well, that to the extent that so many scenes in this movie, multiple scenes in this movie, are all ADR. They they did yeah they that's noticeable ADR. Yeah. Uh, the whole scene will go was, by where no one's lips move on camera. They always talk when they're off camera because it's all adding plot after the fact. Apparently, the story didn't make sense. Uh, it it still doesn't make a whole lot of sense, no. but. Uh, because we, we never really feel like we, we re- learn what the MacGuffin does, but not right. like it's how significant it is. They'll we introduce learn. characters who do nothing like, oh, mm. she's this really important character who is this, the da- the niece of his butler who was brought in to help with this important assignment. Literally, all she does is make him a sandwich and, and like yells two lines of dialogue. Yeah, uh, I did like uh the, the butler character. Don't call him a butler, though. His name is Butler. Yeah. Uh, and he's played by a really fantastic actor named uh, Nanso An- Anozi, mm-hmm. uh, who I've seen in a few things. Like he was in a Guy Ritchie film. Uh, he's done a couple of things with Kenneth Branagh already. Yeah, actually. yeah. He's he worked with Cinderella. And he's worked with Kenneth Branagh. Yeah, he's played smaller roles, but he's a very charismatic actor. Yeah, he's, uh, he's 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 a he's a, a large guy. He's like kind of a brute. He's got uh, you know sort of this tough demeanor, but he's very good at playing very sort of soft, caring characters. Yeah. From what I've seen, and I like Nanzo Anansi a lot. I actually I also mm. like um, uh, Lara McDonald, who plays the um, the elf um, fairy, the, or fairy, whatever mm. the, uh, the the cop. Yeah. Uh, the hero cop whose father was disgraced and now is going rogue. And yeah, she's, up, she's got a lot of charisma. She's she's one of those young actors where you're like, oh, she could go really far. Mm. Like, I hope this movie not being good uh, doesn't hurt her career in a tangible way. Because watching this movie, you see that, mm. oh, she's good. Mm. She's The Artemis Fowl kid's fine. She's really good. I want to see her in better movies. Yeah. Uh, I'll I'll say this. I've seen so many of these goddamn YA films now, and how about you know these special teenagers who run afoul of the supernatural, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, even though you know the Hunger Games is very different from something like uh, like Artemis Fowl, they all have a, a very similar storytelling uh, structure, mm. like uh, the way the the world of the extraordinary is introduced, and the way the heroes are introduced, and the way the plot points need to all culminate in these big special effects battles, and the way they introduce lore. Uh, it's just part of my cinematic language makeup now. I just know how these films function. I don't like them all. I don't think it's necessarily effective. I think it's actually very rote and pat. I think it's a very bland way to write a screenplay. But it's a legitimate genre. It's a, now, but yeah, it's, yeah. It, but it's become such a genre that it, you know, whether or not it hits those beats is now something I can judge. It hits the beats not so well. Yeah. Uh, the design, I think, is real fun. I, I like, like the way it looks. I like all. The, I like all the design. I like the f- the way the fairy world looks. I like the, the costumes the, are really the good. green. Yeah, the, the green is a very important motif. And you don't see a lot of yeah. green movies. Uh, and yeah, just the, the costuming and the design, I think, is is really rather nice. Uh, and everything. And I'm kind of enjoying. The, the clunky, overwrought chintziness of this big, junky entertainment this oh, that uh, Disney spent way too much money on. I, I'm actually really fascinated by... Uh, well, oh, sorry, l- l- let me finish. I'm sorry, I thought you were. Um, sorry. I was with it. 
until Josh Gad was put into action. Okay. We haven't even talked about <laughs> Josh Gad. There's a character named Mulch Diggums. And I remember it because it's Mulch Diggums. Bad name. It sounds like a video game character from an arcade cabinet. Yeah, it really does, yeah. doesn't it? And Josh Gad plays this guy, and he's a thief, and, and he's, he's a, a and dwarf, he, and he's all about treasure. But and he, he's this, uh, most dwarves are really, like, itty-bitty, but he's the size of an ordinary human. Yeah, and the whole mm. idea is that he's, like, a giant dwarf. Mm. There's a lot to unpack there. Like, there's some stuff in there mm. that's actually not... That cool, but in, in this, it, whatever, it's this fantasy thing, and that's not and in, the movie's biggest problem. And in weird. this universe, dwarves burrow like worms, like yeah. the, the, by literally eating dirt and passing it through their bodies. Yeah. So when they bring in Josh Gad to like infiltrate Artemis Fowl's house, which is secretly what Artemis Fowl mm-hmm. really wants, um, it's not a surprise. They tell you it pretty quick, actually. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, he. Pulls open his jaw like Gina Davis does in Beetlejuice. Like, it's really kind of horrifying. <laughs> like, yanks on it with his yeah. fists. Yeah. Like, I can tell, like, a small child's going to watch this and that'll be, like, their first nightmare, uh-huh. like, with that giant mouth. And then he just jumps into the ground and starts eating dirt. And he pulls down his pants so that the dirt can go through his underwear and explode out his ass. And mm. I'm like, no. <laughs> he, Don't he do that. Pulls his mouth open, and, and they, they, you know, Patrick Doyle is doing the music, and it's just like big crescendo, big action moment. He's just feeding time, and he dives face first into the ground and starts farting clods of dirt at another character. And I'm like, what the fuck were you thinking? Why did he? I'm gonna say this right now. Mm-hmm. I accept that this is magic. Uh, I didn't need to see him. I didn't need to see the dirt go out the other side. I could have accepted that. that he could that, just digest dirt yeah, that quickly. Yeah, why not? Yeah, yeah. Or, he could just, or someone could even ask, like, hey, what happens to all that dirt that you eat? It's going to be a rough morning. Like, yeah, that, that would be enough. That, that's I don't a gross joke, but all right. Yeah, it's better than what we but got. There's, there's actually like, a shot of him, like, shooting dirt out of his ass. Did not need that. What is with this, this year and bad, long-delayed fantasy movies <laughs> with something... monsters come with stuff coming out their butts? Because between <laughs> this and Doolittle, <laughs> I do not do yeah. not want. Look, Doolittle is one of the worst films of the year, quite Ooh, easily. Yes. Uh, this one is not one of the worst films of the year. It's just plainly mediocre. Yeah, I can tell that Kenneth Branagh does feel like he was excited to put a lot of this. Irishness into the movie because yeah. he's also Irish. The and fantasy stuff, yeah. All of that fantasy stuff, you can tell he actually has a little bit of enthusiasm for. I feel a lot more excitement from the filmmaker from this than I do from Thor. Uh, I think audiences responded a much more broadly to something like Thor. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Thor is more easily digestible. This is like... I mean, it's they're, weird, they're, they're both but pretty it's, weird. Come on. They're both pretty weird, but they're, they're not asking you to like accept a new plot point or a new monster mm. type every other 30 seconds. That's true. So this is, this is I'm thinking, with that 90-something minutes, this is a really dense movie. Mm. And yet not a lot happens in it. And... Yeah, most of the movie takes place in that time bubble yeah. around the house. That's yeah. like the last, last half of the movie is I, just that. I, part of me kind of admires that. And I kind of like, based on what I read of the novel, if they'd followed the novel a little closer, I think this actually could have been a really clever kind of edgy. Standoff movie. Yeah, yeah, kind of a different kind of take on the YA thing. I like the idea of a supervillain being your lead, but not in like a minions kind of way where it turns out like, oh, he's actually just great. Like, no, he's a ruthless kid. Like, mm. you could show him getting more moral over time, but 
Yeah, here they go bend over backwards and say all this ruthless stuff that he's doing, he's perfect. Not as interesting. Mm. But beyond that, yeah, I don't hate this movie. It's not particularly good. In fact, it's actually rather bad. And it feels like there was a much longer cut of this somewhere. Because seriously, like these ADR scenes. ADR is when you record lines after the fact in order to... Um, you sometimes you're just covering up for you couldn't get usable sound that day, mm. but oftentimes people use it in movies in order to fill in plot points that don't make a lot of sense. Uh, if you listen to the commentary track for The Godfather Part Two, mm. Francis Ford Coppola talks about this, where there's a scene in that movie uh, where um, oh, who's the who's the brother in The Godfather who sucks? Uh, oh. Played by John Cazale. Sonny. Sonny. No, 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 not, not Sonny. Not Sonny. That's Fredo. That's Fredo. There's a scene in the movie where Fredo is wakes up in the middle of the night, and it's almost pitch darkness. You can only see silhouette. You can't see his face. And he picks up a phone, and he's talking on the phone. And Francis Ford Coppola says, whenever possible, I try to shoot a scene like this in my movie, because if the plot isn't making sense, I can do anything in that dialogue. <laughs> so that whole scene is just there to plug up plot holes mm. in The Godfather Part Two. But if you don't have that, oftentimes what will happen is there will be a line of dialogue that occurs, like, two people will be talking in a scene, mm. and you'll watch a scene in which the pe- person on screen is never the person talking. That was all editing after the fact. Mm. And there's, like, three scenes like that here, which are full of exposition. It feels like they are, like, desperately trying to patchwork this movie into existence. But when I was growing up, Fantasy movies mostly sucked. Like, there are a couple of good ones. Did you? I've heard so many people talk about how the 1980s were like this golden age for fantasy cinema. Not really. Like, there's a few good ones that we, well, the, like, the, oh, the we're Conan. The original Conan. Conan, you, know, you got stuff like The Dark Crystal and and mm-hmm. its, its brother Labyrinth. You have The NeverEnding Story, where all these, like, those, really were, the, striking, those were the four. Yeah. I mean, then, but then the, you there's get... Return of the Jedi's that's, kind okay. of celebrated. Kind of, uh, okay. That's in the sci fi realm. It's a slightly different thing. I'm talking mm. about the sword and sorcery Frank Frazetta type stuff. Okay. There's a couple of good ones that mm. people like. I don't even like all of those. Right. But there's a lot of them which are just messy and cheap and problematic. And we really had to use our imaginations in order to make this work. And we had to sort of latch on to this one element in Red Sonia so that Red Sonia could be a fun movie and not a piece of crap. <laughs> or like this one element in Beastmaster yeah. 2 through the portal of time because there just weren't a lot of mm. fantasy oriented films where people put in a lot of effort to not only make it like fun but also great mm-hmm. so when something like this comes along and like there's a few things I can latch on to the production design is really cool some of the cast is very very good there's a couple of neat ideas in terms of how Artemis Fowl uses like criminal mm-hmm. mastermind skills in order to outwit fairies and there's a few humorous moments here and there yeah. uh, like a uh, Mulch Diggums is a pickpocket. Yeah, yeah. It's one of his talents, and there's a great bit where, uh, where uh, one guy says, "Where's my gun?" And he pats for his like, like reaches behind his belt to free- pull out his gun, uh-huh. and Mulch Diggums hands it to him because he's already. Stolen. Yeah, that's a cute moment. Uh, the, yeah. All these things are fine. Like mm. these, there are these moments in the film that I can latch onto, mm. and I can actually enjoy for at least a while watching Artemis Fowl. And when the movie is bad, it's just kind of sloppily edited and not very well written, but, like, it's not painful. Mm. It's just a generic fantasy film, except for the couple of moments where it's not. 
I don't hate this movie. I don't, I, I, no, I don't I, hate I, this movie. I, it's easy to, to, to be mad at it. I'm not. It just doesn't work. Uh, yeah, no, I, I agree. It's it's sloppy, but there. I feel like there's there's still so much energy that I'm willing to forgive a lot of the sloppiness. And yeah. I, I feel like, as I already said, I feel like Kenneth Branagh is actually excited about this material, which I don't get from a lot of these big uh, franchise blockbusters. Mm. I get the feeling often that the filmmakers are just sort of there to do a job. Which is true. They're usually the directors are usually not the ones making a lot of the the creative decisions, especially on a project like this. Yeah. This kind of big, big like fr- you, like supposedly launching a franchise look, kind of picture. The majority of these like, and there's a few exceptions here and there, but the majority of these like sort of would be teen or YA franchises, you'll notice they don't get a list directors for the first one. <laughs> There's a couple where they have, like Harry Potter had Chris Columbus. He was a big director at the time, still big in history. Oh. But when was the last time he made a hit? You know, like, no, no. Um, so like that. P- that's definitely P- an exception. Pixels made a lot of money. <laughs> well, yeah, okay, fair <laughs> enough. I don't think people are thinking of him as a visionary anymore. But no. um, or or um, oh, what was another example here? Like, but then they'll like they'll have like someone like who's going to start the Hunger Games franchise? Gary Ross. A good filmmaker, hmm. but not a hit machine with a very particular aesthetic who is going to boss every one of the producers around. They're looking for a competent and interesting work for hire. And that's that's kind of where Brana is in his career right now. Unfortunately. Yeah, I, I, Did I, you see that movie you made about Shakespeare? I didn't. Yet? I didn't. I don't think it's out yet. Or it, no, I think it like came and went it and like squeaked no, by. Nobody saw yeah. it. Uh, no, sadly, I didn't see that one he made about Shakespeare. Uh, I I want him to do another Shakespearean oh, production. God. What would you want to see him do that he hasn't done yet? Lear. Oh God, yes, <laughs> oh, definitely God. Lear. What am I talking <laughs> about? Yes, King, I want to see him do King Lear, yeah, like a straight up King Lear directed yeah. by Kenneth Branagh, no doubt starring Kenneth Branagh. Yeah, let's In do fact, that. What, now here's the question: Would he cast like Derek Jacobi? As Lear, or no, no he'd play he Lear himself. He'd play Lear. He's, so let's, <laughs> he's Kenneth Branagh. How old is Shakespeare? How old is he's Kenneth be Branagh the, now. He's, he's got to be in his 60s at as least well. In his 60s. Yeah. Uh, I just he looked can, it up. He's 59. I, I think. Knows. Yeah. I think. Um, and he's willing to look old in movies. Let, let, let's wait 15 years and then let Branagh do a Lear. I don't mind if they just put him under a little makeup. Like, I really yeah. don't care. He's not in, though. It, Lear isn't in every scene. No. I, so I think like, he'd have a lot more fun if he played. Um, uh, the fool, mm. or if he no, you know what he'd do? He'd do the Shakespearean purity thing, mm. and he'd cast the same actress who plays Cordelia as the fool, because traditionally in productions of Lear, the same actor played both. Is that traditional? I thought that was more mm. revisionist. No, from what I understand, in, in original productions of of Lear, uh, the same actor played both roles. I didn't realize that was that went that mm. far back. Interesting. Mm. Um, but yeah, let's do that. Let's let's have him do Lear. That sounds amazing. Mm. I'm down. Um, okay, Artemis Fowl. Uh, tell me, uh, it's it's not the atrocity people are making it out to be. It's not good. No, but uh, it's not painful. It's it's just it's only it, it's only painful when Josh Gad is farting dirt. It's not. It's not like oh, thank God we have Disney Plus because <laughs> we finally got to see this. But there aren't a lot of like big fantasy movies coming mm. out this year because they all need to make hundreds of millions of dollars, not a billion dollars, to make their money back. So they've all been pushed back. Mm. This is one we've got. Yeah. And if you've already got Disney Plus and you feel like watching something dumb and blockbustery, 
it's it's a it's a mildly enjoyable ninety it, minutes. It'll scratch the itch, that's for yeah, sure. Yeah, but I'm not yeah, sure if it's good or not. But it's not. There, there's going to be some kid who watches this thing like twelve times a day. Sure. Yeah, who's just going to discover this and be yeah. really excited about it. Um, there's a speaking of movies that were supposed to come out in theaters this summer and ended up going uh, to streaming. Tell me about because I didn't see this one. Tell okay. me about the King of Staten Island. The King of Staten Island. I can never it's, remember what borough it is. <laughs> it's the King of Staten Island. Okay. Uh, yeah, this is the latest film from Judd Apatow, which means a few things. One, it's going to be about kind of a losery guy who uh, goes on a redemptive arc and learns to be less of a losery guy, and also it's going to be too long. Uh, so. <laughs> This film is 136 minutes. Doesn't need to be that long. Okay. But uh, he, uh, I think Judd Apatow has found a good match in Pete Davidson, who we uh, just saw, and I was really impressed by in a film recently called uh, Big Time Adolescence. Yeah. Where he actually plays kind of a similar part. Uh, in this one, he's a little bit more of leaning in Seth Rogen direction, where he's like a little bit more of a charming cad, but you actually get to see a lot of genuine pain from this guy. Uh, and it goes through a lot of the same kind of Apatavian beats, uh, if you will, uh, <laughs> to coin a word. Uh, does every director get a get an adjective get, now? Yes, absolutely. Well, if if, okay. if they have if they're an auteur and they have a style, then sure, All why right. not? Yeah, fair enough. I'll, I'll I'll whip out the I A N suffix on any. What, what is Spike Lee? A, a Leean? Leean. Spikeish. L E I N. No, L E I N is a word. Um, <laughs> yeah. We'll know. figure it out. We'll anyway, Apatowian. So spikish. <laughs> it's, it's a very spiky film. <laughs> or jointian. I don't know. Um, <laughs> well, it, because you've seen Judd Apatow films where he, yeah, he deals with somebody like Seth Rogen, who's a, a comedian, and his films tend to come across as comedies. The King of Staten Island feels less like a comedy and more like an actual like straight-up drama. Pete Davidson plays a guy in his 20s. He's still living at home with his mom, Marisa Tomei. Poor Marisa Tomei uh, didn't ever want to play moms and now is stuck in that role. Mm. Uh, because I've seen her now play the mom in far too many pictures. She's uh, she's much more made to a whole generation. Yeah, she, now. Well, she's a much more versatile actress than that. True. Um, I, did, you, but, was, did you ever see that movie Parental Guidance she did with Billy Crystal? Oh, God, no. It's <laughs> fucking terrible. <laughs> I steered, steered the hell away from that The one. whole point of the movie is that everything, like, everything, like, baby boomers did was right mm. and everything their kids believe is awful and stupid and ruining the next generation mm. of kids. I, it's so condescending and I, shady. I remember uh, the poster for Parental Guidance in a theater was right next to the poster for the Evil Dead remake mm. and the tagline for the Evil Dead remake was like the most terrifying film you ever, will ever experience. I remember seeing a screening and walking next to Leonard Moulton as he was walking out and he looked at those two, he stopped and he looked at those two posters and said, this is this is switch taglines. <laughs> it's a good line. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Pete Davidson, uh, his dad died several years ago. His dad was a firefighter who died in the line of duty, and now he has become incredibly bitter about life and about everything, and especially about firefighters. Hmm. He believes all firefighters uh, live foolish lives if they decide to have families because they live such a dangerous lifestyle, and uh, he actually gets to tell off his friends his uh, father's old friends at the firehouse about what an asshole his father was and what an a what asshole all these guys are and his life is thrown for a loop when Marisa Tomei begins dating Bill Burr who is another firefighter uh, uh, Bill Burr from uh, b -b 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 
various TV things. show, um, Breaking Bad, uh, a TV show I haven't seen, but I know that's what he's known for. Bill Burr was in that? Uh, well, maybe not. But uh, Bill Burr plays the, the firefighter, and uh, Pete Davidson is now forced to kind of go out into the world and figure out oh, yeah, what it is. Oh, yeah, he wasn't Breaking Bad. Okay. I forgot <laughs> he's about gonna, it. going to figure out what he has to do with his life. It's about uh, this shiftless loser. His ambition, uh, while he's getting high in the basement, is to open a restaurant where you can get a tattoo while you eat. That's his big ambition. It's and a terrible he's, idea. He's covered with really awful tattoos because he's constantly practicing and one of his friends is covered with really awful tattoos because his friend is sucker enough to let him practice. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, there's, it's not like big artistic things. He's not a great tattoo artist, but that's his ambition. Mm. That's all he's got. He has a best friend that he's sleeping with. She wants to be his girlfriend, but he keeps pushing her away. He's very emotionally unavailable. And after a while, he just t- he comes to realize what a pathetic loser he is. And thus begins his redemptive arc about how he kind of gets back on his feet. Uh, it's, and I, I mean this in all sincerity and I mean this as a compliment, it's not that funny. Uh, it's not packed with hilarity. We're not mining this, uh, these situations for a lot of jokes. Uh, when Pete Davidson does something really kind of horrible, it's not often played for laughs. There's a bit where he and his friends are getting high on the beach and, a, and he's got his tattoo kit there mm. and a kid comes by, he's nine and the, and he says, Hey, and he's high. He's high. He doesn't know what he's saying. Hey, you want me to give you a tattoo? Kid says, yeah, I'm tough. I could get a tattoo. And he ends up like tattooing a line on this nine year old and he runs off and says, that hurts. You're a monster. Get away from me. <laughs> And, and he's like, ah, his, it's fine, it's fine. But he's not let off the hook for a single second. Like, that's not, a, like, an Adam Sandler thing. So, um, like, his parents get mad at him or something? Yeah, his parents get mad at Good. him. Uh, it, 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 the, the, the kid's father gets mad at him. He yeah. ends up having to babysit the kid. It turns out that... Oh, my God. The, yeah, that, the uh, other Pete Davidson movie was also about, like, a, a kid who's yeah. way too young getting a tattoo. Uh-huh. Yeah, that was also in um, a big time adolescence. Mm. Big time adolescence, I think, is a better film than this because okay. big big time adolescence, I think, deals a lot more with uh, the emotional repercussions and how these kind of loser characters, from a certain point of view, are seen as uh, and like aspirational figures when you're younger, mm-hmm. when really they're just sort of horrible when looked at when you're older. Yeah, I think the movie does a good job mm. of that, of undermining mm. Pete Davidson's whole comedic persona, basically. Yeah, and, and, and here, yeah. here, same sort of beats, just takes a lot longer, it kind of meanders, it could mm. be a lot tighter, but I, I think this is a little bit of a sweet spot for Judd Apatow. Mm. He's figured out how to make the character, take the characters of these sort of like, quote, lovable losers, and make their loserness into something a little bit more dramatic and uh, and harrowing mm. than just sort of light and stoner comedy. One of my favorite, like, movie... I don't know if it's a trope or just a recurring mm. uh, a gag, is uh, characters who have an entrepreneurial dream that is stupid. <laughs> well, and that was another... That was part of... Um, the movie Knocked Up. Yes, it was. I was going to bring yeah. this up. Like, uh, there's actually a good gag in the movie Knocked Up where uh, Seth Rogen and his pals all have this uh, plan to uh, start a website that catalogs all the nude scenes in mainstream movies. And mm-hmm. they're researching it all and they're talking about it and they're actually taking it really seriously. And then about two thirds of the way through the movie, someone says, You mean like that website, Mr. Skin? And they realize that not only does it already exist, but they had a better name than they mm-hmm. had. And 
but like this, and they've been doing it for years. Yeah. There's this, uh, but there's there's a plot point in a lot of movies where you have to have a character who has a dream, mm. and their dream is to start a business. But you want that business to be sort of interesting. You don't want to just be like, eh, like waffles. I'll start a waffle house. Mm. Yes, there's no passion there. You want to have like, I have this really amazing idea. Problem is, as a screenwriter, you have to come up with an amazing idea. And it may, but an amazing idea that isn't so good, you should do that instead of write this mm. movie. So, depending on how broad the story is, you can come up with the stupidest idea ever. And my favorite one ever is in a movie called The Palm Beach Story. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. Joel McRae in that movie, he, uh, he's got this dream. He's trying to, he's got a new idea that's going to revolutionize aviation. And the idea is this. So you got this big city like New York City, right? Mm. But you got to keep an airport all the way over here. It, it makes no sense. So we're going to build a giant metal net over the city. <laughs> and the planes can land on the net. Mm. And then you just climb down the skyscrapers when you're done. Great, great idea. That'll work. That's the yeah. stupidest fucking idea ever. I, I remember in the movie The Muse, the Albert Brooks film, uh, where oh, yeah. the, the idea is he hires a woman to be his muse, to inspire him. And he mm. hires Sharon Stone, and she might be supernatural, probably not. It's a very uh, inside baseball movie. It's Yeah, it's all about the Hollywood, and the idea is... He's he's in a rut. He can't think of a, a comedy screenplay he wants to write, and the comedy screenplay he comes up at the end of that is like this Jim Carrey vehicle about like uh, an illness that's spreading throughout an aquarium. The idea is, is <laughs> Jim Carrey is owns an aquarium, uh-huh. and a bunch of wacky things happen at the aquarium, but he can't think of like the third act twist where things go bad, mm. and so the whole thing is the fish gets sick. That's her big thing that she tells him. That's the stupidest thing in the it's world. It's not a good script. No, that's 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 something that might come in a twist in a script that's already been worked on by 30 other screenwriters. The only good part of that movie, I mean, Sharon Stone's good in it, but like the well, only the, like the, good scene in the that Scorsese movie. The Scorsese cameo. The Scorsese cameo. There's a scene where Martin Scorsese shows up as himself, and he's also hired Sharon Stone hmm. to give him ideas. And his whole thing is, I got this great idea for a new movie. I'm going to remake Raging Bull, but there's a difference. There's a twist. This time, I'm going to cast a really thin guy. <laughs> like, just real, like, unhealthy thin. But it's the same movie otherwise. Raging Bull, thin guy. What do you think? And Albert Brooks is just like, yeah, that could work. Cool. <laughs> I mean, he cusses a lot, too. It's like, oh, it's fucking cool. It's fucking cool, isn't it? It's fucking cool. <laughs> Then as he as he walks off, he's like, I, I, I gotta get out of here. I gotta write, work on this thing. And do you know where the nearest Starbucks is? And Albert Brooks says, you've had enough. <laughs> um, so in the end, uh, so it's just kind of okay? It's it's pretty good. Okay. It's not great, but I, I appreciate that uh, Judd Apatow is evolving as a okay. filmmaker. Uh, and then lastly, our last new release of the week is a film called Warning. Do not play. It is a new film that has been released on Shudder. So surprise, it's a horror movie. This is a Korean supernatural horror film about a woman who made a scary short film Mm. and now has a deal with a a movie production company, but she hasn't got the right idea yet, and they're running out of time, or they're going to abandon her whole project. They're like, hey, what do you want to do? Give us a horror movie. And she hasn't come up with the script. She's got two weeks to come up with the script. She's floundering for ideas. To the point where she's literally just asking people at bars, tell me something scary. He's <laughs> just trying to figure what it out. What scares you? And then um, someone tells her about a movie that showed at a film school that was so scary that people fled the theater and someone died of a heart attack. Love it. 
It's the premise of cigarette burns. It is a little bit, but and and it, it's not cigarette burns though. Cigarette burns is a different thing. Cigarette burns is um, an episode of Masters of Horror. Uh, about a guy who's trying to find um, a film that's so scary that it makes you go insane. Yeah, it's a good premise. Mm-hmm. Um, um, John Carpenter directed it. It's co-written by Drew McQueenie, uh, film mm-hmm. critic extraordinaire. Um, this is sort of a similar setup, but it goes in a different direction, and I appreciate that because that's one of the things I actually think doesn't quite work about Cigarette Burns is the ultimate conclusion. But um, great images, just the plot doesn't quite fit mm-hmm. it. Um, but uh, the other thing that she hears about this movie is that it may have been shot by a ghost. Okay. Yeah, This okay. is totally cigarette burns, because there's an angel in that yeah. one. Um, so the whole thing is, she is trying to track down this movie so that she can either, probably just rip it off. She's just desperate for ideas. Hmm. And over the course of the film, she tra- she's able to track down a small clip, but she doesn't see what's so fucked up about it. She ends up being contacted by the director, who is now, like, a complete wreck of a human being. Mm. Um, And she breaks into his house to try to steal the thing, and... It's... It's the kind of movie where I'm watching it, and I'm like, is this the kind of movie that doesn't know how movies work? I I was about to ask, how accurate is, like, the archiving? Well, it's not bad. There's actually some good stuff in it. Um... There's the thing that got me though is when you're telling me that it's not just the scariest movie ever, I can go with you on that. Hmm. But it was like made by a ghost, and I'm like, did the ghost do Foley? Was the like, ghost there editing? The, the ghost has people was, to yeah. do multiple takes. What's what's the thing? Because once you have a ghost like screwing around in After Effects and adding a title sequence, it just stops being scary and starts getting kind of funny. So I'm watching this and I'm just like, what, how is this movie going to pay off? What's the idea behind this movie mm. that's going to actually justify all the hype build up around it? And I will say this. They did not do what Cigarette Burns did. They did their own thing. And I dig it. Okay. I like where they go with it, how they make you think it's going to be one thing and it's actually another. I don't want to ruin what it is because it's a fun reveal. and It's not like a mind blower, but it's playing fair. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense. And it is creepy. And you can see the way that the guy who is allegedly the director, even though he says a ghost directed it, you can see how he has completely lost his mind in this process. And how our protagonist, who is obsessed with the horror genre and obsessed with trying to tell the scariest story possible herself, is also falling down this rabbit hole where I'm willing to do anything as long as it's scary. Mm-hmm. There's a really good bit in this movie where um, they're looking at like behind-the-scenes footage of the guy who allegedly made this horror movie, and he's talking about why he's making a horror movie. Uh, first off, he's wearing a shirt with the skull from the experimental film 2187, which is, <laughs> I never would have that's, recognized. That's got to be a little bit of an insider base. Yeah, I, that's right not even on IMDb, yeah. but like I, I saw that. And I'm like, hey, I wouldn't have recognized that if we hadn't done a, an episode of Episode Zero about this experimental film. Mm. Um, so that was kind of interesting. But but he's talking about how he was in the hospital for some like horrible uh, illness or injury. I can't remember specifically what it was. Mm-hmm. But um, he was in a really dark place, and he saw The Exorcist on television. And that confrontational quality of fear and terror and 
reaching out and connecting people through that emotion is what made him want to go in that direction and tell that story in the first place. So okay. I'm watching this. I'm like, that's actually a healthy perspective on the horror genre. This is clearly made by people who love the horror genre. This is clearly made by people who are interested in what is scary. Okay. It's also clearly made by people who have excellent vision. There are a couple of sequences in this movie that are so dimly lit that I couldn't see <laughs> oh, what was shoot. going on. Now, here's what here's what I think is happening here in these scenes. Uh, I think the movie was designed to be seen in a movie theater. Yeah. Where the room will be pitch black mm. and anything that is light on the screen will really pop out and there will be... There's no like reflection on the screen from like the window with your Venetian blinds slightly, you know, open. There's n- it's just pitch darkness mm. and it might have been more effective in a theatrical setting than it is on streaming. Okay. I will give you that. If you see this movie and it's not amazing, but I do like it. If you see this movie, turn off all the lights, watch it at night. You'll get a better experience out of these sequences because I watched it in the middle of the day and it was just hard to tell what was happening sometimes. Oh, shit. Not the whole movie. It's not like there's the, they did that movie, The Slender Man, not the documentary, oh, yeah. but the fictional movie about it, which is atrocious. Mm. But even in a theater, that movie was so dark that when there was a jump scare, I had to take it on faith. <laughs> like they would do a bang, mm. and I'm like, if you say so, movie, I don't know what's happening right now. Um, so I think this one feels a little bit more controlled than that, but it's a downside to watching it on streaming. Mm. Um, but I love the protagonist of this movie. I believe her. I think she's interesting. She's got that kind of, um, Lovecraftian fascination with the macabre and the mysterious that leads to her undoing. Mm. Um, but I believe it, which some of the worst movies to try to handle that plot point don't Mm. succeed in. Um, so yeah, if if you're if you like horror movies and if you like uh, movies about horror movies, this is an okay watch. This is not amazing, mm-hmm. but I did like it. Okay, yeah. So on the critically acclaimed scale, where we review our movies on a scale of C minus to C plus, C is an average motion picture. C minus is below average, aka bad, mm-hmm. and C plus is above average, aka genuinely good. Uh, I'm going to give warning: do not play. Um, like a, a high C mm. like it's never okay. it's never astounding but if you're a genre nut you'll mm. find something to enjoy here there's some scary bits and I like the way that they promised us something and they delivered it in a way that yeah it might not make you like lose your mind from mm. fear but you'll say to yourself that works and mm. that's after this huge setup that's enough. Like I'll I'll give you credit for that. Like mm-hmm. that's it's it's hard to capitalize on that kind of. It's so fucking scary to blow your mind. I'm like I see what you did. That's cool. all right. <laughs> um, okay, so high C. Mm-hmm. Uh, the King of Staten Island. Also a C. Very very uh, good moving film. Uh, not great, but you know cut cut it down. Judd Apatow learned to edit, but uh, yeah. but also a good film. Yeah. Okay, so I see. Uh, Artemis Fowl. Artemis Fowl. I'm gonna give it a C because yeah. I enjoyed watching it, even though it's it's mess and it's dumb and it has farting dirt. Uh, not an enthused C, mind you, mm-hmm. but not a C minus. I'm gonna give it the lowest possible C, where <laughs> okay. there's just again, I don't hate this movie. I could watch this movie again and have a reasonably okay time, but it's clearly fighting itself mm-hmm. where there's a version of this movie that's a little bit more dark and cynical and more effective 
and then there's this Disneyfied version, and then there's the version where actually stuff happens on camera and isn't explained like after the facts, like in the post recording room. Mm. Um, it's a mess, but it's not an unwatchable mess. I'm I have a soft spot for this kind of Frankenstein movie, mm. um, which is one of the reasons why you and I are both like kind of okay with Justice League as it is. Yeah, because it's yeah. not the worst thing. There's actually some good stuff in there. Like I can it's, wrap my head around. It's that. fine. I understand yeah. everything that's going on in that movie. Anyway, uh, and uh, then lastly, the five uh, the five bloods. The Five C Plus, one of the best films of the year. Easily. Please watch it. Yeah. Uh, it's not just good, it's important. And yeah. it speaks to the moment in a very important way. So uh, please, please, please watch it. I'm, I'm going to just uh, throw it out here. I've seen a lot of Vietnam movies, mm-hmm. and this is easily upper echelon, like mm-hmm. one of the best Vietnam War movies mm-hmm. I've ever seen. Uh, so, damn. Good job. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so those are the new releases for the week, and now it is time for the critically acclaimed streaming club. Wherein, while there aren't any new movies in theaters, or almost no new movies in theaters, because where are the theaters, uh, we are trying to focus on films that are on streaming that we can catch up on. Uh, Movies that either Whitney or myself have never seen before, or maybe we saw it once as a child and we don't remember it, but these are basically holes in our own film education. They are voted on by members of our Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. There's a poll every single week. And uh, this week, we wanted to explore what was being offered on HBO Max, a new streaming service with, I must say, a relatively impressive collection of older films. That is to say, when uh, when a new streaming platform launches, a la Disney+, Plus, mm-hmm. they're curated to the point of not having enough. Yeah. Uh, th- they have all of the stuff you expect, but there's not a big back catalog. It's the most frustrating thing about Netflix mm-hmm. is that you can't get too many films made before like 1990 almost. Uh, yeah, if then. Yeah, yeah. There, there might be a few notes like, oh, RoboCop. That's like an old classic at this point. They're, they're not going to have like this huge spate of American classics from the 1940s, you, for instance. You want to get depressed, uh, go to Netflix mm-hmm. and just type in classics. And see what and, you get. And yeah. see there's like... Th- 30 movies on there and it's basically their version of classic is anything released before 1989 mm. and even then there's a couple from the 90s in there mm. um so there's a lot of older mm. movies that if unless th- some of them are on the criterion channel some of them can be found on other streaming services but for a streaming service where you pay one subscription fee and you get all the content there aren't a lot mm. of really good options and hbo max one of their big draws is that they have access to the Turner Classic Movies Library. Mm. So they actually have quite a lot. Yeah. I'm actually impressed. There's a fair number of stuff I haven't seen. There's a lot of established classics. Um, there was a recent controversy over the fact that they not only had Gone with the Wind, but they were advertising the hell out of the fact that they had Gone with the Wind. <laughs> there was a bus stop near where I live that had a poster for Gone with the Wind and HBO Max. And I'm like, I never thought I'd see that again. <laughs> I'm amazed they did that because Gone with the Wind, though historically significant, is really racist. Just outwardly so. Yeah, and HBO Max, Mm. once people started talking about it, they pulled it from the service, and they said they're going to put it back with a disclaimer explaining that this is full of racist shit, but it's a significant film, and we feel it should be available, but you should know Mm. before you go in that you will be exposed to some really racist shit. And a a bunch of people flip their lids, but they don't matter because they're the racist people, so we don't have to listen to them. (laughs) 
Um, but in any case, they do have a lot of not racist stuff too, or at least not nearly <laughs> as racist stuff. And so we so we decided to put a poll out of movies that are on HBO Max, and there are plenty mm. that one or both of us hadn't seen before. And one of the films that I put on there mm. uh, was My Dinner with Andre, uh, a film from 1982. 81. 81. 1981. So from 1981 that stars Wallace Shawn and Andre Gregory uh, as two New York mm. intellectuals, uh, both of them work in the theater, mm. who have dinner. That's the movie. That's the whole movie. It is considered one of the best movies of the 1980s. It is considered like one of the few movies that is completely devoid of cliche. That's something Roger Ebert once said about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And I'm a huge Wallace Shawn fan, and don't really know Andre Gregory that well, but I'm a huge Wallace Shawn fan. Yeah. So it's weird that I'd never seen it. I was meant to get around to it. Had you seen it before this? I had. Okay. Uh, I, I had seen My Dinner with Andre. Um, it was one of those things that I caught up on uh, in my 20s. Mm. You know, it's like, oh, I re- why, why not just go see all of these great movies that I've always heard about? So sure. I saw. I think I saw My Dinner with Andre, and they make reference to, was it Autumn Sonata in this yes. film? I, I hadn't just seen Autumn Sonata, but I had just seen Cries and Whispers, so I feel like I made like a really kind of clever double feature out of it. Yeah, they talk uh, about an Ingmar Bergman <clears throat> film and how it so emotionally affected one of the characters. He was mm. found miles away in a park crying mm. over it. Because, of the, yeah, the movie was just so moving. Yeah. Uh, and... It really, the movie really spoke to me because uh, a lot of the entertainment I consumed as an adolescent uh, dealt with the things that the two characters talk about in this movie. Yeah, uh, that is the new age and new age philosophies versus uh, a much more down to earth humanism. There's a and, lot of yeah, and that's kind of the what the conversation generally is about. But that's not what this movie is about. No, this movie is actually. Uh... <laughs> it's kind of a Rorschach test in a lot of mm. ways because although it is a sense of, here's the setup Wallace Shawn is a playwright he's basically playing himself but he's not yeah. um, he's, the character is named Wally um, he uh, he's written a few plays he's done a little acting mm. but none of it's taking off right now mm. he's barely getting by they're only like making the rent because his girlfriend is a waitress um, and he's just he used to have all these big dreams and ambitions, and now he's just going through his to-do list and paying the mm. bills. And one of the things on his to-do list is to have dinner with an old friend he hasn't spoken to in years, and in fact has been kind of avoiding. Mm. So he goes to a restaurant where he meets Andre Gregory, uh, who is a theater director, who for the last few years has been bounding around the, the planet, you know, in the different countries doing a variety of new wave, new age, weird art projects that have expanded his consciousness, or so he says. Mm. Over the course of the film, they have a long conversation in which they talk about all of these different things that Andre has done in order to break out of this zombified state of being that he is convinced that most people Mm. on the planet are stuck in. Well, especially in... in New York, specifically yeah. New York or City, metropolitan. Like the, the, the urban Western world. Yeah. If, if you will. He, he feels that people have become detached mm. and simple, are simply going through the motions and aren't really living their life. And Wallace Shawn, who was complaining about that at the beginning mm. of the movie, when he's sitting right next to this incredibly bourgeois guy who is making some interesting points, but 
after a while, while Ashan is just like, well, what the hell is wrong with getting up and enjoying a cup of coffee yeah, and yeah. having a day with your wife and doing your job and, and re- reading Charlton Heston's biography. Yeah, That's a, what, a part of it. What's wrong with that? Is it not like, isn't it just as narrow minded and conceited to say that there is no value mm. in day to day life, which is where most people spend the rest of their lives. And the whole movie is basically a long debate about this. Mm. You can look at the movie at very face value, and you can see how it's about... uh, This movie is about two people who are kind of at a crossroads Mm. together, and they're sort of feeling each other out and expressing their various ideas about essentially midlife crisis-type material, Mm. about what is life's meaning, what is life's purpose, should I throw caution to the wind and do whatever I want in order to really feel like I'm alive, or can I feel alive any other way? And then you start to realize that while we're talking about this and we're talking about throwing a monkey wrench into what is expected, we're seeing a movie that is entirely one conversation. Mm. And all of a sudden the movie takes on this meta-narrative quality where everything that they're talking about also applies to the artwork of storytelling and the movie represents a break from that. And yet, even though it represents this huge break from our expectations of cinema even though it it is a huge break from what we now consider banal storytelling, the actual premise of the film is incredibly banal. So we're (laughs) we're hyper-focused on something that is really simple. And somehow that's breaking us out of our day-to-day routine, even though it's our day-to-day routine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And... uh... I think, but at the same time, I think it's celebrating uh, cinema or more specifically theater mm. and that kind of theatrical form of storytelling in ways that we no longer as connoisseurs of the form tend to appreciate. We just came off of Artemis Fowl, for God's sake, which is big <laughs> plot-driven effects blockbuster, and we're used to talking about sort of story and character. First of all, the characters are incredibly rich. These are fictionalized versions of themselves, but you get a very good sense as to who these people are mm-hmm. very early on in this movie. Uh, and not not and even if you don't know who Wallace Shawn was at first, you know who Wally is in the movie yeah. right away. So it's, we get, it's a very rich character. We get a really good sense of character. We get a really good sense of place. And we understand that being a storyteller isn't about conveying facts in a plot. It's Mm. about wrapping people up in the ideas that you're trying to convey via an anecdote. Well, it's about... And I think that this is about the strength and the power of that kind of anecdotal storytelling and how that is almost a transcendent transcendent experience when you're in a cinema. You know, I think it's not so much about that. I think it's more about trying to shake people out of complacency with their art. Mm. So that something that challenges the norms, mm. you know, okay, so like you're you're trying to wrap people up in your ideas, mm. but in order to wrap people up in your ideas, you need to get their attention. Mm. And the most obvious way in the world to do that, and there's actually a conversation about this. The most obvious way in the world to, way in the world to do that is to be salacious or be violent or be sexual or be mm. controversial. And what this movie actually argues is that you can do that by just stripping all of that away and expressing pure idea. Mm. You mentioned that this is sort of a comment on theater, but one thing I thought was really fascinating is that even though this would be the easiest thing to do in a theater, it's not a play. 
It's this not, was a movie first. It's not a play, and in fact, it a lot of people like you're you'd be tempted to look at this and just say, oh, they just went into an, a restaurant and improvised something. Mm-hmm. This was scripted. Every single word was scripted. Yep. It was written over the like, course of a year, I think. Uh, they spitballed a bunch of ideas, and I think Wallace Shawn uh, ended up doing most of the actual writing, even though they're mm-hmm. both credited screenwriters, and. That's also a set. It's not just some restaurant in New York. Yeah. That they actually like thought it out and the way they recreated the place was actually so accurate. Mm. And there's such good actors in conversing that you don't even realize the meticulous artifice of this. There's actually like when you watch <clears throat> this movie, I highly recommend when you watch My Dinner with Andre. And we you recommend you watch it because oh, it's, it's actually excellent. It's amazing. It's it's this incredible like puzzle box of a movie where mm. although in some respects it feels like you're just listening to a really good podcast, um, <laughs> it, it's the kind of thing where like again, every time you could rewatch it, you could take something different away. Mm. One of the things I highly recommend you do when you watch mm. this movie, when you rewatch this movie, I recommend you mm. try to watch this movie with headphones on while mm. you're watching it. Really try to focus on the sound design because there's a lot of detail that goes into this restaurant mm. that's very subtle and it really speaks like it's it's almost because this movie is directed by Louis Maul, who is a filmmaker who in this movie basically steps away. There's not a lot of, aside from having a voiceover at the beginning and the end, there's no artifice here. There's no calling attention to your shots. It's very immersive. But that's a deception because every single subtle thing that happens in the movie is very carefully designed. Mm. And if you pay attention to the movie and you pay attention to the fact that the people who are just a little out of focus behind Andre, well, Sean's back to his to Amira, but everyone's a little out of focus behind Andre. You see people react to them, like when they're talking about how, oh, people are so wrapped up in themselves and they're not really thinking about their place in the world. And you realize that there are people in this restaurant who are annoyed by how loud these guys are (laughs) and they're oblivious to that. That's a joke. That's that's a little detail that's being added here. And then you realize like after they've been talking for like an hour, the movie's nearly two hours long. After they've been talking for like over an hour, you realize that all of that action in the background has gone away. And these guys who are talking about the obliviousness of people and how people need to be more aware of their surroundings and not just, you know, think only of themselves and their <laughs> and their own office, they've shut down this restaurant. Mm. The people would like to leave. I actually they, I didn't pick up on that. That's actually really because really they never they never they never treat it as a punchline. Yeah. But yeah. by the time that's over, they realize, oh, we're the only ones left in the restaurant. Mm. But if you pay attention to the background, if you listen to like how the clinking of glasses slowly fades away, they've been the only people in that restaurant for a while. Hmm. And yeah, it's it, there's a commentary here about how these guys are expressing all of these highfalutin ideas, many of which are real mind blowers, and you're really going to challenge you and your opinions of things, whether you're more of an Andre or more of a Wally, that or in the middle, you'll have something to think about. But I think the movie is also aware that <laughs> there's a lot of navel gazing going on. Yeah, here. Yeah. These are these are intellectual types. One of whom is very bourgeois and is talking mm. about all of these things that he can only do because he's rich enough to do them. Yeah, well, I was, yeah. was going to point that out actually. Yeah, how, how Andre and to, to get into the meat of their conversation, which we've actually been avoiding. Um, yeah, Andre talks about how he yeah he goes off and does these artistic clatches and he's buried underground and here's some experimental theater and he m- met up with this you know really 
well-respected director and they're working on all these art projects and he talks about stripping away all of the artifice and going out into the world and not worrying about the material so much mm. when he himself is a rich man who lives in New York and came back to New York and is still really well-versed enough to sit at a table and talk about it in an urban setting. He's constantly name-dropping. He's, he's talking about oh yeah, all these he, travels that he's done that are clearly very expensive. He's got a lot of interesting philosophical points, but he's also very clearly showing off. Mm-hmm. And that's something that Wallace Shawn isn't doing. In fact, he's doing the exact opposite. He's like, well, okay, maybe I'm not losing myself or having these gigantic philosophical moments, mm-hmm. but I'm also not being a dick. <laughs> <laughs> And not, not that Andre's a dick, actually. He's I think a, they're both... Uh, I find him a little insufferable, actually, in the first yeah, half of the well, movie. You call, you call him bougie, and that's the perfect way to describe him. Yeah. And, uh, and, yeah, sort of sitting and talking about these exciting things you've been doing. It's like somebody who just becomes a vegan. Yeah. It's like they have to talk about this new lifestyle because, A, it's all they're thinking about, so that's all that's in their life right now. Right. But at the same time, they want you to know that they're better off. Well, and it's interesting rather than just be better off. Well, and I think this movie is is engaging in that mm-hmm. is that there's a there's a small class struggle going on here mm-hmm. where a lot of these things that like Andre says people should do Mm-hmm. In order to improve their lives, you should mm-hmm. get buried alive and you should go put on shows in the Sahara and mm-hmm. go back to your collection of surrealist magazines from the 1930s. And you start realizing that to some extent, mysticism and philosophy in the modern era mm-hmm. is a privilege of the rich. Yeah, yeah. And then the, by the end, Wallace Shawn, who is bemoaning the fact that his day-to-day life was kind of humdrum, starts espousing the dignity of day-to-day monotony. Mm-hmm. And he's not wrong about that. Another thing I was thinking about when I was hearing Andre talk about this like midlife crisis that he had and this lack of faith that he had in his work. And he starts talking about weird shit about how, like, yeah, I was in a church and all of a sudden, like behind the priest, I saw this monster yeah, with flowers going. coming out of its nose. Yeah, and, like, you know, it's like flowers out of its tone, violets on its toenails yeah. and things on its eyelids. And yeah, he has this, this vision, this weird, like drug like vision. And I started to think about this movie as, in addition to everything that we've talked about, mm. every single interpretation of this movie, I think, is accurate, which mm. is one of the great things a movie can be. Um, but I started looking at this as this is a, also a film, I think, at least on some level, about mental health issues mm. and how here is someone who is wealthy enough that the fact that they are vividly hallucinating <laughs> and interacting with their hallucinations can be seen as a fun quirk. <laughs> and that's actually like when you mm. if someone told me, like, listen, I vividly hallucinated mm. in church today and I saw a demon behind the priest i would say you should talk to someone you about should, probably that. talk to the priest about that you should talk yeah. to the priest and or a doctor mm. probably the doctor more than anybody because you may be suffering from some sort of mental health issue because that's not something you're supposed to be doing typically and I'm worried about your mental health. And instead, he's only talking about these a variety of issues, a variety of bizarre and sometimes troubling experiences that he's had, mm. as though it's all part of this wonderful, fantastical personal journey. And maybe it is, or maybe it isn't. And that's something that needs to be addressed. So I thought that was a fascinating lens through a uh, mm. view of the film as well. Um, 
I'm trying to think. I wrote down a whole bunch of notes on this. Oh, uh, here's, here's a note I wrote down. The service is kind of slow at this restaurant. Like, it takes well, forever for them to get their final cup of coffee. Th- th- this film came out in 1981, and this was a time when um, the hippies were essentially selling out, or buying in, if you ask them. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was uh, right on the cusp of Reaganomics, really kind of exploding and taking over the world. And so we had this class of people who were bourgeois, who were had come up through the the hippie vine, mm-hmm. uh, taking experimental drugs and going on these weird head trips and adopting what was known as the new age philosophy. That is, we've sort of entered a new age, and that there's actually like it, it's really complicated. But uh, th- the idea of the new age is that there were some people who actually believed in it and actually lived it and actually tried to become one with the earth Mm -hmm. and it was that was the thing you were selling out from trying to actually be live a much more pure life this is something every generation tries they have their version of the pure world and there's the people who and eventually they grow old and they kind of sell out uh we see that a lot in uh, with generation x as well We, we talked about it recently how the movie rent eventually moved into movies like Sleeping With Other People where they say, congratulations, boys, you sold out. And they say, yay. Yeah, there's a complete, there's um, a complete generational value but the, uh, shift. The, yeah. the idea is that this is about a guy who is essentially trying to live a life of nostalgia. He is taking something that was very, very real in society, that is, going on these spirit quests, traveling the world. This is something a lot of artists did at the time, looking for themselves. And, of course, the big irony here is, if you're going to look for yourself, why is the first thing you do leave yeah you're right here you're here it's all right here in front of you but uh yeah going on these like these journeys george harrison wrote a song about that without Mm. going out of my door i can learn all things on earth like Mm. the idea is all the answers are here in in this little type of acid i mean here in my head (laughs) touche yeah Uh, but I, I appreciate that this is a film very much about the breakdown of those hippie ideals. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's and, and not in a dark way, not in sort of an Altamont sort of way, like in the movie Gimme Shelter. It's it's more about how those things are great if you are in a position to pursue them. Mm. They might provide you with a lot of actual spiritual edification, but at the same time. What has changed once you've gotten back? Well, you're still going to a restaurant and you're still having a conversation with a friend. And yeah, you could have done that anytime. Yeah, yeah, you didn't need to go through all this crap to do it. There's and, and and essentially you've settled back into the exact bougie thing that you said you were so desperately trying to escape from. That is ironic. There's mm. there's two elements that they talk about in the movie that I think address that. And one is right near the end they talk about the idea that art should have perhaps. Mm a sacramental element Mm. where it's not something to just be consumed and enjoyed and then go about your life. There should be an element of art that is attempting at least to be life changing Mm. or life affirming or life uh, uh, damning, whatever there should be some element of it that allows for the possibility of religious experience. Mm. And in a movie about two dudes talking over a dinner table, it's hard to do that without discussing actual like life-changing experiences and so Mm. perhaps there's an element of that where the movie is challenging you to uh pursue that element but another thing that they talk about ironically in this movie with so much purpose and so much um 
thought put into every word and every pause so that it all has deep meaning and that it all has a variety of different interpretations that uh, can drive your thought processes or even your life after you mm. watch it. Um, they also talk about the need for, at least occasionally, for art to feel purposeless. For it not to necessarily, for, for art and life to sometimes mm. just be about the act of existing. And it doesn't need to be about your to-do list or all of these bullet points that a movie or play or whatever need to get through in order to be considered part of a certain genre or whatever. It is the, the value of mm. existing to which a movie about two dudes just having dinner also fits mm. that as well. Well, and that, and that actually goes to a bigger conversation about the actual medium they're working in. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're talking about theater, something that is ephemeral versus cinema, which is recorded. Yeah, for posterity. Like, yeah, so, every theater performance vanishes unless yeah. you're filming it, but every movie, idea is, is, every movie to, is there for posterity. Yeah, But every, every theater performance only exists in your mind. It's supposed to be ephemeral. Yeah. Uh, that that's that's its construct, and there's something to be said for that kind of non-permanence. And there's a great deal of beauty to be had in that non-permanence of theater. That's, I mean, the non-permanence of theater is something that's been around for far longer than cinema. Cinema's what, mm-hmm. you know, 125 well, years generously, give or, uh, give or yeah. take, yeah, uh, closer to 140. But um, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Uh, how, but, and but how old, yeah, how old is theater? Theater has been around for like five, three. at least five thousand years. Like that's as long yeah. as we can find like formal theatrical productions. And of course, yeah. there was performance before that. So going back to the the very early days of mankind, or humankind. I don't yeah. want to say mankind. Sorry. Uh, so uh, I think this is a film that is arguing in favor of theater. Because in having it on film and having it be this technological thing, this. Uh, uh, thing that's been recorded for posterity it is flying right in the face of that uh deliberately uh, almost exhilaratingly futile ephemerality of something like the theatrical experience and yet this is not a play no this is a movie exactly they're they're using again they're using that format to comment on how the theatrical experience is going to offer you something a little bit more because the cinema we're watching is limited yeah it's for focusing us to to look at the limits of the the genre the uh the artistic medium do you feel that my dinner with andre is basically a podcast uh yes yes and no because it's supposed to be presenting itself as having that kind of extemporaneous quality that podcasts often long for Mm, even though all of our Um, podcasts are rigidly scripted yeah you (laughs) Given all of the sputtering I've done, golly, I hope you don't think that's true. <laughs> every and, and uh, are, every um, every interruption, every it's all this. Luca, way. get off the counter. There is no Luca. Luca is a, a written construct. <laughs> there is a Luca. There's a Luca. Yeah, Luca's based on a real person. <laughs> <laughs> he thinks he's a person anyway. Yeah, he does. Uh, but there are also scripted podcasts. Yep. You know, you look at something like This American Life. That's just mm-hmm. a series of monologues and, and dialogues. Uh, I, I don't want to call it a podcast because podcasts, uh, you use the word podcast and it evokes kind of a, maybe a cheapness when compared to something like, you know, the thousands of year old tradition of a theater. Right. But I, it, I just feel like that might be the lens through which it's hard not to view this movie for the first time if you're young. Mm. 
Perhaps. You know, like it's going to feel like if you just I, I, if you just photoshopped a microphone in front of each of them, then mm, some headphones would, on them. Yeah. It would feel like a really cool podcast, mm. like a really like there's this um oh, what's it called? There's a there's a show on Netflix now called The Midnight Gospel. Okay. And the idea is that it's like an extra dimensional being who pops into different realities in order to record a podcast with a random person. Okay. And it's a series of fascinating conversations with real life people, many of them experts in a variety of subjects. And as they discuss things, they animate around what they're saying a series of bizarre circumstances that can only happen in that one alternate mm. reality. So imagine my dinner with Andre by way of waking life. All right. Where the, the, the actual imagery that we're being subjected to may be um, subjective or expressionistic or wildly fanciful, but have absolutely nothing to do with the reality of the two people talking. Hmm. It's an interesting show. Right. Um, and it were, there's there's I feel like the legacy of my dinner with Andre uh, has at least filtered down into that kind of content mm. where is just two people having an incredibly intellectual conversation for a long time, not like a soundbite on a talk show, but like really getting into the meat of it. Mm. Is that in and of itself? not fascinating and indicative of human experience and worth studying and analyzing mm. and downloading into your brain. Um, that's obviously not something the movie had in its mind. These the, Outside of radio and talk shows, that's not something that existed in 1981. Mm -hmm. Not in the form I'm talking about anyway, but, you know, we are 40 years later. Mm -hmm. Things are a little different. Just, uh, just a thought I had, I don't know. Uh, no, it's it's a great observation, actually. Um, when you mentioned if you, if you saw this and they were wearing headphones, yeah, this, this yeah. would just be a podcast. I could see Richard Linklater mm. making my dinner with Andre, Andre the podcast form. Mm. Like it's just a really interesting conversation between Ethan Hawke and and Julie Delpy, <laughs> but they're wearing the headphones and they have the mics in front of them and they get really into it. And that's just the whole movie. Um, now I love good movies about good conversations, mm -hmm. movies where people just kind of talk. Um, the last good one I saw was Southside with You. The Two Popes doesn't quite count because that only half of that movie is an interesting conversation. Yeah, Southside with You is a really great movie. Yeah. People do not talk about that. If you haven't seen it, it's um actually it's not a bad film to talk about now because mm -hmm. Spike Lee is involved. But um, it's about the first date between Barack uh, Obama and Michelle. I mean, she would later marry him, but I'm mm -hmm. trying to remember what her last name was. Is it Robinson? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Michelle, I'm for, okay, Michelle I'm Obama. Yeah. Michelle Obama. But it's about their first date and mm. how they just walked around town talking and getting to know each other. And um, yeah, Robinson. I was, Robinson, I was right. Yeah. Um, and it's just two smart, you know, socially conscious people interacting. And then later on in the movie, they go to see Do the Right Thing, which is what they actually did on their first date. And they what a first up, date, jeez. Yeah. I know, right? And and they end up talking about that. And actually having a conversation about the film with a white co-worker who had a completely different takeaway from it. Mm. And, yeah, it's a great movie about great conversations. It really should be more mm. talked about. Yeah, uh, Michelle was played by uh, an actress named Tika Sumter, who's very talented. She also produced the movie. Mm. And, uh, uh, yeah, she. I've only other, ever seen her as, like, the girlfriend character in, in movies, mm. uh, like, like in the Ride Along movies. 
but yeah, she's really, really talented in this one. The only thing I don't like about Southside with you is there's dialogue to the, the effect where they make fun of uh, each other's physical attributes. Mm. Uh Oh, Bar- yeah. Barack Obama makes fun of how tall she is because Michelle Obama's five foot eleven, and uh, she makes fun of Barack Obama's ears because he has large ears. The actors, however, don't have those qualities, so we just kind of yeah. have to squint a little bit. Yeah, the actor, the actor who played Barack Obama doesn't have big ears. Other, has, than, other than that, he looks quite a bit like him, though. To he, be fair, he has the the mannerisms down. I think that's the. Uh, let me, I, you I can forgot, get away I with that. his name, uh, uh, Parker Sawyers. Parker Sawyers. Um, Remember Tika Sumter. I, I think yeah. I th- I feel like you can get into the movie's rhythm and you can imagine it's them. Mm. Um, it's not like Nixon, where like Anthony Hopkins never looks anything like Nixon, <laughs> no. like not even remotely mm. close for a second. But, he's, like he's got, got it got, down. He's got the voice down and the mannerisms, but he doesn't look anything. He's like He's got him. the voice and not always the like. Occasionally, he sounds Welsh. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Yeah. It's actually a really good movie, but. Mm. Um, Anyway, but uh, yeah, if you haven't seen Southside with you and you want like a, a good like double feature with uh, eat, eat, my dinner with Andre or, or do the five funds, yeah, or do the right thing, uh, it's it's an excellent film and mm. people should talk about it more. Um, but yeah, my dinner with Andre, uh, mm. I'm really glad I finally saw it. I feel like if I'd seen that this movie when I was young, mm. it would have expanded my mind. On the other hand, a lot of the issues that Wallace Shawn is going through in this movie are issues that are about things people deal with in their late 30s. And I feel like mm-hmm. I understand where he's coming from better now yeah, than I would yeah. have when I was young. And I would have maybe needed to rewatch it and mm-hmm. revisit it and experience this conversation yeah, from multiple I, angles. I uh, uh, Just one last point. I, I said that a lot of the media I was consuming at the time sort of prepared me for my dinner with Andre when I saw it in my 20s. Mm-hmm. And I was listening to a lot of radio dramas uh, by a company called ZBS, uh, that put out a whole series of uh, dramas starring a character named Jack Flanders, and the, his shtick was he was like Andre. He was tr- constantly traveling the world, and he was uh, having these kind of uh, spiritual adventures where he'd run aground of like these mystical creatures, and people are fading in and out of consciousness, or he'd go off to other these sort of like spiritual planes and have conversations with ancient trickster gods and that sort of thing. But he was always kind of. Uh, uh, an American doofus through all of this who would wake up the next morning and say, wow, that was kind of weird. Where's my coffee? Uh, and, and, you know, it was, it, it's lightly humorous. It's very, it, they're very droll, these adventures. Uh, they're not even adventures. They're just sort of uh, conversations and ha- happenstances that just happen to, like, scrape their fingernails against the cosmic. Right. And uh, I feel like those were these very practical conversations about gigantic things. And... With my dinner with Andre, we're finally having the schism uh, illustrated a little bit more clearly about how these gigantic spiritual experiences that are trying to get you closer to the cosmos is cosmos uh, are cosmi (laughs) cosmies are uh, always going to be balanced by the fact that you're just a doofus who lives in reality and who needs to drink coffee in the morning. Yeah. yeah it, it's essentially the divide between the mind and the body. And I felt, oh. felt that their conversation and the subtle antagonistic, antagonistic relationship that these two people had was illustrating something that I was thinking a lot about at the time. So I fell right into this. Well, I really, really loved it when I saw it. I watched it again in preparation for this, and I loved it again. Yeah. Uh, but again, a little less for the content of the conversation, more for 
what was coming out in between the words and the relationship between the two people. Well, that's something I, I really mm. admire about it. I'm sure if I watch it again, and I'm sure I will at some point, mm. I'll focus on different things. But mm. um, one thing you brought up that I think is really interesting is the idea that, okay, we have all these high-minded ideas, but there's also like reality kind of mm. comes crashing into it. And there are so many movies that have a perspective that they're mm. trying to convey as well they should. Their art. Mm. But even the best movies often only have that one perspective. And one of the things that makes My Dinner with Andre so special is that it is about two clashing perspectives that get equal time and equal validity. Mm. And so you're not just getting a message mm. or a theme or one idea. You're getting a cacophony of often contradictory ideas mm. that are bouncing off of each other and are perhaps... Uh, uh, mutually beneficial to one another and it's it's you could look at it as hypocrisy you could look at it as irony i look at it as the universe is just works like this there's tons of what's that walt whitman said do i contradict myself mm -hmm. very well i contradict okay. myself i am large i contain multitudes mm -hmm. you can have you can carry the ideas of both wallace sean and andre together at the same time mm -hmm. and or go back and forth yeah, yeah. um one last note before we go. I was, there was a fun thing Wallace Shawn said where uh, people were talking about how uh, it feels like they're playing themselves. Mm. Their characters are named after themselves. Um, and Wallace Shawn said that's not really what we're doing. And he proposed that if they ever remade the film, they should have the same Wallace Shawn and Andre Gregory, but they should switch roles. That same conversation, but now Wallace yeah. Shawn is the... The one who was going on sabbatical and and Andre Gregory they're, is the one who's like a little bit more of the humanist. They're both very old. Andre Gregory in particular is like pushing 90, I think. Mm. It's not too late to do that. <laughs> do that. My dinner with Wally. My dinner with Wally. Let's yeah, do why it. Not? Yeah, I'm down. I, I, think I love Wallace Shawn. He's great. I interviewed uh, him once. That was one of the best yeah. interviews I've ever had in my life. What an interesting yeah. man. If if you're like me, you probably ran into Wallace Shawn doing sort of broadly comic stuff. Princess like Bride. A, Princess Bride and, and Deep Space Nine, mm -hmm. where he played the Grand Nagus. Or uh, you might, uh, if you're a little younger than us, you might remember him as uh, one of the teachers in love in the movie Clueless. Yeah. And, and so you've seen him in these sort of mainstream broad comedies. Uh, he is also like a giant in the theater world, and mm -hmm. he is a, a very deep thinker. And uh, he was in a really, uh, one of Jonathan Demme's last films was uh, him doing The Master Builder. Uh, and it's really great. I've seen that one. Uh, and slowly discovering what a fascinating mind Wallace Shawn is has been an exhilarating experience. And every mm. time I see like a new project he's doing, I'm always going to be interested in, even if it is playing like a, a sniveling sidekick character in some YA fantasy movie. Yeah. Um, anyway... See my dinner with Andre. It's a. Per, it's if you've got HBO Plus, and I know you're thinking like, oh, all these superhero movies. Check out the TCM section. They got my dinner with Andre. They got a ton of other classic movies, mm. and I'm sure we'll get to some of them uh, eventually. And this was a real treat, and I'm so glad we did this. Mm. Uh, next time, we're going to go to a different, a relatively new streaming service. We're going to take our first foray in this podcast into Disney Plus. Uh, we have another podcast on our Patreon. Uh, that is called Not on Disney Plus, where we talk about all the stuff that Disney has, but are mysteriously not putting on Disney Plus, and we don't understand why. Mm. Uh, so we're talking about all the stuff that you can't find on Disney Plus. But 
let's give credit where credit is due. Let's talk about the stuff that is on Disney Plus. Hmm. So we're going to be uh, talking about an animated film on Disney Plus that one of us hadn't seen. Uh, we put up a poll this weekend. Uh, it was a landslide. It was a runaway right away. Like it was the, pretty the, quick. Usually we, had, we had to close the poll pretty fast, actually, yeah. because it was it was cl- like no yeah. way any of the other contenders were going to meet this. I was really excited, perhaps because the two I put on it. Because what happens is we each put two on the poll, hmm. um, and so that there's guaranteed to be two on there that I haven't seen and two on there that Whitney haven't seen, and sometimes there's overlap and we both haven't seen it. Um, I put the Reluctant Dragon on there because who the hell ever talks about that? And I put Home on the Range on there because who the hell ever talks about, about that? that? So I thought that'd be really interesting. And Whitney put in 101 Dalmatians, which I'm surprised you haven't seen. I, I haven't seen a lot of the, the like mainstream canonical Disney animated it's, it's films. It's interesting. That's that's mm-hmm. a that's a big one. Uh, but the one that has been voted for is the animated Disney version of Robin Hood, the one with the sexy fox. Awesome. He wasn't sexy until kind of recently. No, he was. I, I trust me. Trust me. I saw well, it as a kid. I haven't seen the movie. I saw it so, as yeah. a kid that they, they knew what they were doing with that fox. Oh, that God. fox is quite foxy. I'm, um, I'm really dreading. It's this. not that I like this movie. Okay. I'm going to tell you this. I haven't watched it in many mm. years. I, I, th- I think it's probably been about 20 years since the last time I watched it. Okay. But I remember liking it a lot. Mm. So I'm looking forward to revisiting it. And I'm looking forward to talking about it with you on this episode, uh, or the next episode of Critically Acclaimed, where we will also review other new release movies, which I don't know what they are, because I didn't look that up. But something. This was the big big release week. It's a good one, actually, with The Five Bloods alone. Mm. It's just totally worth it this week. So please go see that. Please see my dinner with Andre, and join us next week when we can all talk about uh, the Disney Robin Hood together. And I think that'll be a lot of fun. Okay, so uh, you can find us on Twitter if you haven't already started following us at Critic Acclaim. Not Critically Acclaimed, that's too long for Twitter. Critic Acclaim, that's what we were able to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am on Twitter at William Bibiani, although I'm taking a bit of a breather from social media right now, but I'll be back. Mm-hmm. Uh, Whitney is at Whitney Seibel. Indeed I am. Uh, very special thank you to all of our patrons who keep this show going. Patreon.com slash Critically Acclaimed Network. And if you sign up, you're going to get access to tons of exclusive content, including podcasts in which Whitney and I review every single episode of Firefly, a podcast in which we're reviewing every single episode of Star Trek in production order, every single series... So it's going to be a long journey there. Mm. <laughs> no end in sight. Uh, we've got a podcast called Only the Best, where we review every single film ever nominated for Best Picture. We've got Not on Disney+, Plus, which we just talked about. Um, and tons of other stuff besides. And if we ever crack our next like goal on Patreon, we're going to do a podcast where we review every single episode of Batman the Animated Series, one podcast per episode. And I'm super stoked about that someday. Um, and... Uh, that's it. That's it. That's that. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And never forget, everyone's a critic. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what?